0: Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Today's episode starts out with a good news segment, then we've got a very unique feats of strength segment. We typically talk about feats of strength that have already occurred, but in today's episode we actually make predictions about a feat of strength that might occur in the very near future. After that we've got a huge research roundup segment in which we talk about several different meta-analyses that have come out within the last couple years over a variety of different research topics. That's followed by a pretty extensive Q&A segment where we answered a long list of listeners' questions. The list of topics included things like how much mercury is in tuna fish, how hypothalamic amenorrhea can affect hypertrophy, whether or not you can split up your workout throughout the day rather than doing it in a singular workout session, and whether or not aspirin might actually blunt hypertrophy and strength gains. Finally, to play us out, Greg and I answered a couple questions that were more focused on professional development. The first question was about how to know when you're ready to take on clients as a trainer. The second question was about some practical tips that Greg and I have for reading and interpreting research. As always, we thank you for listening to the show. This is our final episode of the current season. We're about to begin our summer break. But if you'd like to stay in touch with us during that break, You can go to the website and get on our email list. We send out research roundup content from time to time. You can also follow us on Instagram at officialstrongerbyscience. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler, and this is actually the final episode of the current season. I wanted to make sure it was a really special episode. I thought who would be the perfect temporary co-host to kind of help me out with this episode. I reached out to my friend, Greg Knuckles, and he's been kind enough to join me today. Greg, thank you for coming.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: So, like I said, this is the last episode of the season. We're going to have a little summer break coming up. We will be dropping some very cool bonus content here and there, um, during the summer break, but, uh, in terms of the regular every other week schedule that probably won't pick up again until August or September at the earliest. Um, so let's start out with a good news segment, Greg, what do you have this week?
1: Yeah. So, uh, this is, this is good news that applies in America at least. Um, so there was a recent Supreme court decision, uh, ruling that employment discrimination against lgbtq plus people was unconstitutional um and quite honestly i think it's uh (laughs) i think it's kind of bullshit that that wasn't the law of the land up to this point but uh hey better late than never um so yeah i uh i very much think that is good news what do you have
0: that is good news for sure Um, so mine, I want to preface this by saying, some people are going to misinterpret this as me supporting the act of reading books. And I want to be really clear. I don't support reading books. Uh, when I was a kid, I refused to read almost always got, had a lot of conflict with my mother about that. She was very unhappy, but so this is not at all me endorsing the idea of reading books, but I did think it was a nice story. Um, so A bunch of schools and public libraries are closed across the United States, obviously. And uh, someone in Virginia was like, hey, I'm sure some kids out there would like to keep reading, but they no longer have access to all these books. And so what they did is they started just like dropping books off for people using drones. It's kind of like a flying library, which uh, it's a little bit scary and dystopian, I guess. But it's also good news because the kids want to keep reading and now they can. So If for some reason you choose to read books, uh, now the kids in Virginia are able to do that, which is good. Um, Okay, so feats of strength. Just for some context, we recorded our most recent episode like three or four days ago. So no other strong things have happened in the last like three days. But um, I'm thinking we should do our first ever prospective feat of strength. So I fact checked what we talked about last episode. Julius Maddox did miss a 790 bench press attempt in the gym. It was super embarrassing, honestly. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> <It's>
1: like- <laughs> I, I can't imagine how embarrassed I would feel if I had a close miss on Bench Press at 790.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, no, he's he's. Uh, honestly,
1: the fact that he didn't nuke his Instagram account shows a real strength of character.
0: Yeah, no, but... Uh- Man, so you know how his bench press is. He's either going to get it or he's not. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? There, there's really not a lot of grinding going on. So he he got it off the chest. It's not like it flattened him, but but he got to that sticking point, and there was just one arm that couldn't quite push it over the sticking point. But uh, in any case, you were telling me the other day, I guess he has an upcoming attempt. Uh, he's gonna He's going to try 800, and I think you said it was going to be televised, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not entirely sure. So I looked into this more. I saw... I saw a graphic going around that said like first ever eight hundred pound bench press attempt, and there was like there was an e s p n logo on it, but i couldn't i mean I didn't do a ton of searching, but i didn't find i didn't quickly find confirmation that it was going to be streamed on e s p n um and like I don't have a cable subscription, so I couldn't just like turn on e s p n in the background for forty five minutes and see if they were advertising it. So I don't know. Um, well, <laughs> I was going to give some information that's going to be completely useless. I think there is a live stream of it on YouTube that's going to start tomorrow at uh, I believe 11:45 Eastern time. Oh, so tomorrow's
0: uh, the day he's trying it. Yeah,
1: yeah, June okay. 20th. but uh, by the time you guys listen to this, it will have been like five days ago. so yeah, but th-
0: this is we're recording it first, so it gives us a chance to put our neck out on the line and decide, is he going to get it, Greg?
1: Oh, God. Uh, Man, I felt really, really good about Thor's 501 kilo deadlift attempt. I just assumed that was in the bag and he completely murdered it. I'm honestly not sure about this 800-pound bench attempt. Like, I I think that it's it's almost like a coin flip proposition. Mm -hmm. Like, a, a lot of the... A lot of the low rep sets he has hit leading up to it suggest that his max is probably very, very in the vicinity of 800. Like, maybe it's 790, maybe it's 805. Uh, I think if he gets it, it will be a grind by his standards. Mm -hmm. I... I mean, I don't want to bet against the guy. I, I would... I would say with like 90% confidence that he will bench 800 eventually. I would say with like 80% confidence, like I don't know what attempts he's planning, but I think, I mean, I'm I'm very confident that he's stronger than he was at his last meet where he benched 770. So I, I don't know what attempts he has planned. If he took like 780, 785, I would feel incredibly good about that. I... I'm skeptical of the 800 tomorrow, if I'm being completely honest.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, if you were to ask me, will he get 800 at some point, I would say I'm like 98% sure. But will he get 800 tomorrow? I would say I'm probably like 30% sure.
1: Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, but then again, I, I don't follow him obsessively enough to know how well he peaks. And that's that's another important variable, right? That's like true. Yeah. A close for so, for example, um, when I worked for Chad Wesley Smith at JTS, Chad Chad peaked to a degree that I have never seen a strength athlete peak before. Like he would he would grind weights, you know, four or five weeks out. Like something would be really hard, or like potentially miss it. And then he'd hit like fucking fifteen percent more on the platform. Um, Ch- the the amount that Chad got off of a peak was just absolutely absurd. Um, and so I mean, with Julius, it very well could be that like a close miss at seven ninety three weeks out equates to just destroying eight hundred on meet day. Yeah, and and if if. If he was Chad Wesley Smith, it would be like eight fifty on meet day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So I I don't know how well he peaks. We we very well could be uh, could be underestimating that variable.
0: I hope so because I mean he seems pretty cool. Uh, he does. Yeah. His strength is really impressive. I I very much hope that he gets eight hundred tomorrow. I think that'd be really cool. Same. But uh, but yeah. After seeing the seven ninety attempt, I was like, man, eight hundred three weeks later is going to be tough. We'll see. We'll see. We will see. Okay, so moving on, Um, we've got something, you know, in the past, we've had segments where we talk about Stronger by Science articles. We also have a research roundup segment that we do pretty frequently. This next segment of of the podcast is going to be kind of a mixture of both. Um, So you have an update coming for our big Stronger by Science meta-analysis list. It's a huge list uh, of, I mean, it's like essentially all of the relevant meta-analyses you'd want to see, right?
1: I I'm somewhat selective. Like there there are a handful that are are potentially relevant that I'm like ah whatever I just don't care. Mm-hmm. So there there was one that was like looking at the it was a meta analysis of the relationship between dynamic strength and isometric rate of force development variables and like maybe that's relevant to researchers but like I don't personally give a shit. Yeah. Um so yeah there there are some that would be potentially relevant that are filtered out but it's it's probably like 95% of the meta-analyses and systematic reviews that most of you would potentially care about.
0: And it includes both training stuff and nutrition stuff and so what we're going to do with the podcast is go through some of the highlights fr- from that, that meta-analysis update that's coming. Um, but before we do that, I do want to mention we are entering our summer break here, which means we're not going to be putting up our you know typical research roundup segments, but we will continue sending out our research roundup emails. We, we do emails with some very brief research reviews, totally free. If you want to be in on that, just go to the website, get on the email list, and uh, you'll find them in your inbox. So, Greg, why don't you uh, start us off here with some of the noteworthy meta analyses that you wish to highlight or showcase here?
1: Okay, so going to start with one by Mackenzie Shouders. At all, uh, title of the meta analysis is the effects of exercise intervention on or exercise interventions on resting metabolic rate: a systematic review and meta analysis. Um, and so, basically, what they what they were looking at here was in training studies, both with resistance training and uh, aerobic training, in in studies that measured resting metabolic rate pre- and post-training, does it seem that resting metabolic rate reliably changes, increases, decreases, etc.? And it seems that for both resistance training and aerobic training, the average increase in resting metabolic rate after a period of training is approximately 70 to 100 kilocalories per day. Um, So like, obviously, uh, most research studies are relatively short term. So those are changes one could maybe expect in like one to four months. Um, Obviously, if you train, if you do resistance training for 10 years and put on like, 15 kilos of muscle your increase in resting metabolic rate would be considerably larger but this is talking about going from being completely untrained to starting training for the most part. Um and so for both endurance and resistance training it seems like the increase in resting metabolic rate on average is somewhere around 70 to 100 calories per day. Um in terms of the meta-analytic findings Uh, That increase was statistically significant for resistance training, but not for endurance training. Um, But that's basically because the resistance training literature is quite a bit more homogeneous. um, And so the confidence interval was tighter. So the, the mean increase for both aerobic and endurance training was basically the same. But for endurance training, there's a couple studies where there's a fairly large increase in resting metabolic rate. There were like two studies where there was a small decrease, um, but the mean effect is somewhere in that seventy to one hundred kilocalories per day range uh, for resistance training. The mean is about the same, about seventy to one hundred calories per day. Um, but there's that research is much more homogeneous. Like more of the studies find that there's reliably a pretty small increase. Um, so in terms of of relevance, it's hard. To say, uh, I think, I think like the main point here is that when people think about, you know, is training going to increase my metabolic rate or not, the first, the first place people's brains go is like, oh, if I build muscle, uh, muscle, you know, exists, it it exists, it requires calories. And so if I put on a ton of muscle, that may increase my metabolic rate to some degree. Um, but there there are short-term increases in metabolic rate when you take up training that are independent of how much lean mass you're gaining, primarily because when you're more active, there's just more shit going on in your body, like more molecules are being built and broken down, protein turnover increases, et cetera. And all of those processes require some degree of energy. And so when you go from being just a complete couch potato to doing some sort of training, whether that's aerobic training or strength training, there will be a, a small but possibly meaningful increase in resting metabolic rate.
0: Yeah. And then when you think about all of the various meta, uh, metabolic and non-metabolic processes that involve some kind of uh, transfer mechanism that requires ATP, mm-hmm. you know, there's just a lot of stuff going on that, like you said, extraneous to building a bunch of muscle, there there are other aspects, uh, of physiology that can contribute to that increase in, in resting metabolic
1: rate. For sure. Uh, all right, moving on next, uh, the placebo and nocebo effect on sport performance, a systematic review by Hearst and colleagues. Uh, this is one that I reviewed in mass when it came out. So if you're a mass subscriber, you can head on over to the member site and read a much more in depth, uh, overview of this meta analysis or of this systematic review. Um, actually, it was a systematic review and meta analysis, but only systematic review is in the title. But uh, essentially, so the the placebo and nocebo effect um, relate to either improvements or decrements in performance that are independent of what you're ingesting or what is being done to you. So essentially, you're given uh, like a fake supplement or some, some sort of sham treatment. And researchers are looking to see how your performance differs when receiving something that physiologically shouldn't do anything compared to receiving no treatment whatsoever. Um, and this, uh, this study kind of like split out different types of placebos and nocebos. Um, but it seems like for the most part, Um, the, the magnitude of both the placebo and nocebo effect is somewhere in the neighborhood of a Cohen's D value of like 0.3, 0.4, um, which would generally like traditionally be categorized as a relatively small effect, but possibly meaningful. Um, and I think that's noteworthy. The reason I think it's noteworthy is that most supplements that one might take, to improve performance are generally compared to a placebo supplement. Um, and most of them are associated with, you know, based on like what outcome they're looking at, most of them are so, are associated with a with an effect size in the vicinity of like 0.2 to 0.4. So pretty comparable to the placebo effect itself. Um, and so I, I think that's noteworthy because that implies that compared to no supplementation supplements actually have like a larger effect on performance than maybe one would assume based on placebo controlled studies so the the actual like physiological benefit you're getting from them is a relatively small effect but since kind of the placebo effect is already baked in because you're taking something versus not taking something the actual effect versus no treatment may, in fact, be a little bit larger, um, and you know, I, I think it's I think it's interesting that um, you know even things like even things like you're giving someone something that you say is amino acids, uh, but really it's just like maltodextrin, and you're seeing how that affects like endurance performance or strength performance or whatever. It still seems to have like a, a a small but meaningful effect um which I-, I think like to some degree maybe kind of validates some degree of like bro supplement culture like people taking say like pre-workouts where fucking everything is underdosed but they really feel like they perform better and you know they probably actually do perform better um but it's not necessarily because of the pre-workout. It's just because they're taking something. And just the act of taking something uh, can be beneficial. One of the other kind of interesting things, or actually two of the interesting things from this from this meta-analysis, um, one of which kind of feeds into the idea of like supplement culture and people who just take everything on the market and really buy into advertising. Um, so the first thing that's not related to that. Is uh, this this review found that basically the magnitude of the placebo effect that you derive depends on kind of like how quote unquote intense a placebo is, and so th- this actually tracks pretty well with the medical literature. So if um, you know if someone just gives you a, a sugar pill and they say that it's uh, like an inset, a, a pain reliever that may have some degree of placebo effect on perception of pain. Whereas if they give you a saline injection, and say that it's like an intravenous pain reliever, that's probably going to have a larger effect. Um, So you know, a receiving an injection is obviously, it's a bigger deal than just like taking a pill. Um, And so that's like, that's something that's relatively well understood in the medical literature. Seems like that, also tracks with uh, with uh, like exercise studies as well. So you know they're not out there in the lab giving people fake injections. Um, but the studies that have looked at the placebo effect of like EPO on endurance performance or steroids on strength performance, those actually get pretty large placebo effect. So in the case of EPO, uh, effect size just north of 0.8, which is like the traditional cutoff for what is considered a large effect. And for steroids, closer to like an effect size of 1.4. So to be clear, that's like you're giving people something that you say is EPO or you say is steroids, but is actually like a completely inert pill. But just because they think they're getting this thing that they understand is supposed to improve performance by a ton, it actually does improve performance by a ton, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, the, the potential implication there is that all of you listening to this maybe are stronger and do have quite a bit more endurance than you realize, but you need a huge positive, positive expectancy effect to be able to access it. Um, and it's hard to know how to access that. The, the, uh, the other thing, which as, as I alluded to kind of plays into like supplement culture and like aggressive supplement marketing is, um, one of the things they also looked at was the difference between the placebo effect from just like inert supplements versus preconditioning plus a placebo. So, um, And and this isn't exactly the same as advertising, but the way preconditioning works in these studies is, um, like essentially you, so, okay, let's say it's like a resistance training study. You might have two sets of plates and one of the sets of plates is 10% lighter than they should be. And you give someone a sham supplement and you put the 10% lighter plates on the bar and you tell them Okay, like this is 225 and you're going to bench press reps to failure and they do it and they they get a lot of reps and then you also give them nothing. So you have a control condition where they don't take anything um, and they actually bench press 225 to failure. And so they associate uh, taking this inert supplement with, you know, a pretty substantial increase in performance because you were actually having them lift quite a bit less weight And then in the third visit, you actually load 225 on the bar. You give them the placebo supplement again, which they have now been preconditioned to believe increases their performance by quite a bit. And it does increase their performance quite a bit relative to no treatment whatsoever. And that effect is larger than if you just gave them the placebo in the first place without preconditioning them. Um, and, and like I said, the, the connection there to marketing, I think, is, is somewhat tenuous. So, so this may be a bit of a stretch, but I sometimes wonder if like shitting on aggressive supplement marketing maybe for some people does more harm than good. Because, you know, let's say someone looks at the shit on a bottle or like the ad copy for a particular supplement and they believe it's going to give them steroid like results. Like it, it might have some degree of like preconditioning effect or at minimum, it it may be somewhat analogous to these placebo studies on like EPO or steroids. If someone's taking a supplement, that's actually like a massively underdosed pre-workout, but the, the marketing has led them to believe that it is actually going to be insanely effective. Uh, you know, we're talking about effect sizes in the vicinity of one, whereas the effect size of like placebo effect plus the actual physiological effect of, say, like caffeine on strength performance might be somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.5. So it very well could be that like, <laughs> like dishonest supplement advertising <laughs> can improve performance more than actually properly dosed stuff that people aren't as hyped about could. So um, you're
0: saying we we owe a great deal of gratitude to the shady supplement uh, advertising industry.
1: You know, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying it's ethical and I'm not I'm certainly not recommending it. Um I just think it's like I think it's an interesting question to ponder. So yeah. it is so, you know, just in a vacuum. If you could give someone something that you would know with with perfect knowledge so like this is this is a fil- a philosophical thought experiment now you have perfect knowledge that what you're giving them does nothing but if you hype it up enough it will have a large positive effect versus something that you know will physiologically be beneficial but you know they won't believe in as much and not be as hyped about and will therefore have a smaller effect than the actual inert treatment um what do you do Trex?
0: (laughs) it's an interesting question isn't it i mean if you're only if if the cost to the person was equal in both circumstances and your main interest was in getting them the best gains then logically you'd have to go with the one that's all hyped up right yeah it's fascinating
1: I I don't know. I I think it's an interesting question. And so I want to make something clear here. Um, There, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some physical therapists listening to this who are about to send me hate mail because I've seen, I've seen a lot of arguments against this in the physical therapy space where there's a lot of treatments that when compared to nothing seem to be effective, but don't seem to outperform placebo treatment. So for example, Um, like acupuncture doesn't seem to really do all that much. Um, but when you compare acupuncture to no treatment whatsoever, it seems to improve like range of motion and pain perception to some degree. But when you compare it to sham acupuncture, which no lie generally in the research, that's literally just like, you know, you're doing something on the backside of the body. So someone can't see what's going on. And either you actually insert acupuncture needles or you just like poke them with toothpicks. Yeah. <laughs> um, it seems like poking people with toothpicks in random places has the same effect as acupuncture does. And, and so people who are like high on acupuncture will be like, look, well, in these studies where we compare it to no treatment whatsoever, it has an effect. And then people will be like, well, but when you compare it to a placebo, it doesn't do anything. And there are treatments that do provide benefit when compared to a placebo, Therefore, you're not justified to do acupuncture. You should do other treatments that are actually effective. Yeah. Um, but th- this is like a slightly more nuanced version of that question where, I mean, like, we talk about supplements on this show a fair amount, but I think we both agree most supplements, even ones that are reliably effective, don't have that large of an effect, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and so the question here is like, if, In some instances, the placebo effect and positive expectancy effects can have a larger impact on performance than substances that are actually physiologically beneficial. That's slightly different than kind of that question being debated in PT. Yeah, Um,
0: and and with PT, we're talking about, you know medical care yeah it's 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 substantially more important than like can you do two more
1: reps with 225 exactly it's like
0: the the ethics regarding like okay like you're doing this instead of the standard of care you better have a damn good reason for it, for sure for sure
1: yeah anyway so i i don't really know how i feel about that question period uh but I think it's something interesting to think about.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating. I mean, like you said, we we talk about supplements all the time. And I think we usually give, you know, on the spectrum of like really hyping things up versus just kind of saying, listen, nothing works, don't even try. You know, I think we're, I, I think we tend to take very um, cautious approaches to how we discuss supplementation. So like, you know citrulline malate yeah it looks like it you know works with like a trivial to small effect size you might get something out of it uh it's justifiable but you know you you shouldn't be like more excited on your way to gym because you're like now i'm on citrulline malate so shit's really (laughs) going down yeah um so I, i think we try to give a pretty cautious uh representation of what to expect from these things but but it is really fascinating to think about like If you're overly cautious, are you, like, noceboing
1: people out of an actual benefit? I I wouldn't say noceboing, but I would say, like, potentially reducing the magnitude of the placebo effect. Yeah. And and since the placebo effect is additive with the actual physiological effect and maybe has a similar impact as the actual physiological effect itself... Maybe we're the monsters here, Trex. It's possible.
0: Maybe we should just be saying like, dude, I tried citrulline malate and I don't know how I can go back. Like <laughs> if I had to train without citrulline malate, I probably would just stop training because there's no point.
1: Yeah. You know, Th- this, this really raises an interesting question about uh, te- teleological versus deontological ethics. And we're just not going to answer that question. No. And uh, people can argue about it in the YouTube comments, and we're not going to weigh in. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Uh, So there were... I I think these are my last two. Uh, There were two meta-analyses on foam rolling recently. The first is a meta-analysis of the effects of foam rolling on performance and recovery. Oh, I'm going to assume this is a German name and pronounce it Vivelhova. Um which may be entirely incorrect. Anyway, so um, this, like I said, was looking at performance and recovery. The second one I'm going to talk about was looking at range of motion. Um, And in terms of the effects of foam rolling on performance and recovery, if you foam roll before exercise, it does seem like it has a small beneficial effect on uh, sprint performance but not jumping performance or strength, and the effects on sprint performance are relatively small as well. Um, so for for certain types of exercise, including foam rolling in your warm up routine, may have a beneficial effect. Doesn't seem like it's gonna have a negative effect, but uh, for the most part, like you know, if it makes you feel good before training, do it. Um, but don't expect a, a notable acute effect on performance. Um, And in terms of post-training, foam rolling after exercise does seem to have a small but uh, statistically significant effect on acute post-training strength decreases, uh, decreases in sprint speed, and muscle pain perception which I think is fairly interesting. And it's hard to know how relevant that is in a lot of circumstances. So for example, um, when I'm talking about acute post-training decreases, I'm talking like, you know, you, you do a workout, you foam roll, and then you test strength, you know, 30 minutes or an hour post-exercise versus uh, you exercise, you don't foam roll and you test strength 30 minutes or an hour post-exercise. So In that context, it does seem like foam rolling is is useful and beneficial. It's hard to know if that would actually equate to improved performance over 24, 48, 72 hours post-training. I'm somewhat skeptical that it would, um, but it could be relevant in certain circumstances. So maybe if you're doing two-a-day workouts, possibly it could have an effect, even though that's a little bit of a stretch. Um, But... If you're say competing in a strongman show and you you know you do an event, it's really hard foam roll after, and your next event is going to be in like 30 minutes. It may have some sort of beneficial effect there, um, or even potentially. And I I don't know <laughs> I don't know what this would do to like locker room culture, but even potentially like if if you're dealing with athletes um, and you go back to the locker room at halftime and you know, give all your kids some foam rollers to, to roll around a little bit at halftime may have a small beneficial effect there. Um, so, you know, overall doesn't seem like foam rolling has a huge effect on performance either way, but, uh, you know, seems, seems neutral to slightly positive. If, if it's something you want to include in your warm up and or cool down, go for it, but don't expect like a, a night and day difference because of it. The second foam rolling meta-analysis is acute effects of foam rolling on range of motion in healthy adults, a systematic review with multi-level meta-analysis by Wilk and colleagues. Um, And so, like I said, this was looking at range of motion, which is, I think, the main reason someone would foam roll. They want to acutely increase range of motion. Um, And as far as that goes, it seems like foam rolling does have a, a... relatively notable effect on acute range of motion but notably in this meta-analysis they also looked at studies that compared foam rolling to just static stretching and it doesn't seem that foam rolling has a larger acute impact on range of motion than just static stretching does Um, it may be a better option in some circumstances because for for very very short-term performance Um, If you static stretch very aggressively, it can decrease uh, strength and power performance, whereas foam rolling doesn't seem to reliably do that. Um, So, you know, if you're and I don't know why you would do this, but if you are stretching or foam rolling five minutes before you are about to do like a max attempt squat, like if if that was an option, foam rolling would be the better choice than stretching in that context. But the the effects of stretching on strength and power performance seem to dissipate pretty quickly and seem to be completely wiped out by um, by like subsequent dynamic warm up stuff. So you know if if you're stretching and or foam rolling at the start of a warm up routine and you're going to do stuff after before actually doing stuff that's hard where you're trying to exert maximal force or power, both are probably equally fine. Um, so, you know, if, if you're doing it for acute increases in range of motion, um, and you prefer foam rolling to stretching, you can foam roll. If you just prefer to stretch, you can stretch if you like both. Cause they both feel good. This is the camp I'm in. You can do both. Um, but again, like it, it does have a notable effect, but if you compare it to stretching, both seem to be equally effective. Do what feels right to you in your heart. Um, oh I actually had one more, um, one more systematic review to talk about. Um, so this one I thought was was interesting because it relates to another technology that came on the market. Um, I, I think it's been used in in like research contexts for various like uh, like brain issues for quite a bit longer, and maybe in like learning contexts. But the the performance research just started. I don't know. Maybe five years ago, it's it's not a very old technology for for performance stuff, and that is transcranial direct current stimulation, or tDCS. And when I first saw advertisements for consumer products that use tDCS, I was incredibly skeptical. Um, I, I forget the company name, but there was there was one that was like. Headphones with like little things built in that were supposed to be able to stimulate your brain and it would uh, supercharge your performance and and help you like learn new athletic skills quicker and recover faster and blah, blah, blah. And I saw that and I was just like, this has to be the biggest load of bullshit I've ever seen. Um, Like, I don't know. It just seemed grossly implausible. But uh, now time has passed and there have been quite a few studies on the topic um, and it does actually seem like uh, transcranial direct current stimulation does uh, pretty reliably improve strength performance and strength endurance performance. Um, the The systematic review was also looking at endurance performance and it there, there are some studies suggesting that TDCS also improves endurance performance, but there are quite a few null findings in that area. Um, so that that's a little bit less clear, but it does seem like TDCS uh, has a a small but notable effect on strength and strength endurance. Um, now, I'm still grossly skeptical of consumer products. One because I haven't seen many studies like validating them against research grade stuff, and two because my understanding of the technology is that. The actual electrodes need to be placed on the head in pretty precise locations to make sure you're stimulating the correct regions of the brain for it to have a beneficial effect. And I just don't have enough faith in consumers to to think that they would like reliably always put the electrodes in the exact right places to to have that effect. Um I, I you know, I, I think people certainly could. I don't think folks in general are completely incompetent but it it seems like the type of thing that one would expect or want um some sort of like trained professional to teach to teach people and give them like some degree of training to make sure they were using the device properly um and i doubt that occurs i i doubt you buy a consumer tdcs device and you know, immediately someone from the company flies out to show you how to use it. So I'm I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of the consumer grade stuff. But in terms of like research purposes, the the technology itself does actually seem to be um, pretty promising and uh, seems to reliably improve strength and strength endurance.
0: Good stuff. So I'm I'm going to go through a few of the metas that kind of jumped out to me as I was looking over the update here, and some of them are are going to be quite familiar to our listeners because they are metas that we have discussed in the past. And, you know, there's a lot of content on Stronger by Science and a lot of mass content that predates my participation in both organizations. And I know that a lot of the Trex heads out there, Trex Nation, doesn't really consider that to be part of the canonical texts of Stronger by Science and Mass. But I'm going to encourage people for this particular article, welcome it into the fold because there's some good stuff in here. So the first one I want to highlight uh, is actually a meta I did. It's my citrulline meta-analysis God, from back in the day. What a
1: flex! <laughs> what a fucking flex!
0: So, um, this is one that we we mentioned earlier talking about the effects of citrulline. We actually talked about this last episode discussing betaine, right? We talked about how the citrulline literature, starting out, there were quite a few uh, moderate effect sizes coming out, and then a lot of the more recent research was more on the you know no effect to trivial effect sizes. And so in 2019, I published a meta-analysis on citrulline supplementation, and it did show a statistically significant positive effect. Um, But it was, you know, it was an effect size of about 0.2. And like I said, there is that kind of interesting trend in the data where the more recent studies seem to be reporting lower and lower effect sizes. So in that meta-analysis, you'll notice that I kind of uh, I present the findings. I mean, hell, it's it's a meta, right? You say you're going to do it, then you do it. <laughs> and there's not much you can do about it. And so I say, you know, here's the pooled effect size. But it's important to be cautious with this body of literature because, you know, we expect the literature to grow. There's a little over a dozen studies that that fit the meta-analysis. And as more and more come out, I think we're going to get a more... Uh, more precise, more refined understanding of exactly what effect size we can expect from citrulline malate. But the good news is, you know, a lot of the studies with the largest effect sizes tend to be looking at the stuff that I find most relatable to my training. So using a fixed load on a barbell doing reps to fatigue, those are the studies that seem to report some of the more promising findings in that citrulline literature. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Time will tell if if that effect size continues to shift i mean like i said the first few studies come out and we're like maybe this is an effect size of like 0.4 and then more stuff comes out and we're like "Eh, maybe 0.2 so time will tell but there's certainly enough uh there are enough positive uh glimmers in that citrulline literature when it comes to strength and power outcomes to at least justify saying okay you know it ain't creatine but it might be useful And, you know, based on what you're saying with placebo, now I'm thinking maybe we should just say, honestly, it's not creatine because it's 30 times better. You're never going to believe it. (laughs) Uh, Being sarcastic. I mean, it's a small effect. It's kind of right in line with what you'd expect from some of those second tier supplements like, uh, you know, caffeine for strength purposes, uh, maybe beta alanine for certain outcomes. It's kind of on that tier of supplementation. It's no creatine, and and the more research that comes out, the more we really we really see that. You know, if you were hoping, I know early on with the the beta alanine literature, people were like, "This might be the next creatine," and we it's it's just not. And, and the same thing's true with citrulline malate, are we're, we're kind of coming down to earth a little bit in terms of what we think that that true effect size is.
1: I have a question about citrulline and or nitrate supplementation. Sure. Okay. So. Um... I have gone through periods in my life where my diet wasn't just like god awful, but I also just didn't eat vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I assume I had virtually no nitrate in my diet, probably because I also don't eat cured meats. So mm-hmm. I'm not even getting like that sort of nitrate. Um, and during that period, I learned about citrulline malate, and I thought, like, oh. Well, this seems cool. This was before some of those less promising studies came out. Everything seemed to be coming up citrulline malate at the time, um, and so I took it. And like, I, I don't want to sound like too much of a supplement advertiser, and I'm not trying to. I, I'm not trying to to play into what we were talking about before with like trying to placebo people, but I experienced the skin splitting pumps that they talk about in on like supplement bottles um and i was like holy shit this stuff is crazy and so like i took it for a while it was good um and then like for whatever reason i just didn't finish the bottle of it um and then uh my life started calming down more i started being less of a piece of shit started eating vegetables again (laughs) and a generally more more balanced diet um And I like saw the citrulline in kind of like the back of like the, the under sink cabinet in the bathroom. I was like, Oh, I remember this shit. Like, let's try it again. Um, and I did, and I didn't really notice much of an effect. Certainly not the same sort of effect as I (laughs) noticed before. So this is, this is a completely off topic and out of left field discussion, but is it plausible that citrulline and or nitrate supplementation the degree to which it actually affects you could be proportional to how shitty your diet is. So if, if you don't eat vegetables or consume like nitrate rich, whatever, um, you know, is it possible that the effect is actually larger and more notable versus if you have like a, a healthy lifestyle and balanced diet, it doesn't really do much for you?
0: Well, I would say to an extent, yes. I mean, you probably had like a clinical deficiency. (laughs) (laughs) You probably had a a complete inability to generate nitric oxide. It's amazing that you had a functioning circulatory system. Um, No, but I I would certainly imagine, especially for those types of effects, I, I would certainly imagine that the the subjective experience, the the perceived effects would would be much more notable when there's a much more stark contrast between, you know, what you had been doing and now adding citrulline to the mix. I still think, you know, because we've seen a lot of of research showing uh, citrulline malate and also some nitrate supplements to still have benefits in samples that have you know, a decent amount of vegetable intake. Uh, I, I, I don't think that, you know, if you're like, you know what, I eat salad once a week, so these won't won't help me whatsoever. I don't think it would be fair to make that extreme of a jump.
1: Oh, no, I I wasn't saying that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like but, m- but, more like a, a proportional thing versus like a binary thing.
0: Yeah, I, I would expect um intuitively that if you just absolutely had no vegetables, and overnight, you're like, okay, I'm doing eight grams of citrulline malate, and I'm also going to have some beetroot juice. You would probably have a very different training experience uh, <laughs> compared to someone who was on a pretty balanced diet and added them in. I don't think that just your typical balanced diet alone would uh, completely eliminate the ergogenic potential of them. But but I think you're right. I, I think it would be quite a stark contrast if, if you had a very low nitrate diet to start with. Sweet.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like... I feel like supplement research just needs to uh, needs to pay more heed and cater more to all of the degenerates out there. Like we, I, I would say that that my my people are underrepresented in the literature, um, <laughs> and quite frankly, I feel discriminated against.
0: Yeah, I, I thought you were going to go the other direction and say like, why don't these supplement trials just like bring in a sample of forty people, keep them in a metabolic ward. Standardize their entire diet for three weeks and then do the supplementation, you know, which would be a great idea
1: I actually would be interested in in seeing a study like that like combined nitrate and citrulline supplementation with uh, with some sort of like baseline dietary screen and you just like Screen out people who have normal diets and you include people who have like very high nitrate diets like you include those people and you include people with a very low nitrate diets to see if that had an impact. I think that would be a pretty cool study.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I've done some original research on citrulline and beetroot juice and uh, we, we did do an assessment of their kind of habitual nitrate intake mm-hmm. and we we tested for some interactions basically to say like, okay, did that seem to affect our outcomes? Um, and We didn't find anything notable when when probing those interactions, but that's obviously very different from doing a more formal, uh, you know, there are more intensive ways of kind of screening for that versus just like, okay, what's a general vibe of their typical nitrate intake, right? Like if you were to standardize the diet for a certain amount of time, then that would obviously be a big step up. All right, so moving on. There were a couple other metas in this list that we talked about last episode. Oh,
1: oh actually, first, I want to make clear. Uh, w- when I was talking about never eating vegetables, that was when I was in an undergrad. And uh, like my entire diet was just like rice, beans and bone and skin on chicken thighs because I had no money. Um, vegetables are good. I'm not recommending people don't eat vegetables. Uh, <laughs> I only didn't eat vegetables because I literally could not afford vegetables.
0: Hmm. That's well, not great.
1: Let it be known.
0: Fair enough. It, it is documented. It's on the record. Okay. So moving on, um, last episode, we talked a little bit about that meta with, uh, vitamin C looking at effects on recovery. Um, and again, j- just to kind of highlight those results, there were some, some modest effects on oxidative stress and inflammation, uh, biomarkers, but when, it, when it came down to the stuff we care about soreness and strength recovery, It just didn't seem to do much and it kind of added to that pile of research we've talked about previously where it's like this high dose vitamin c it's probably not going to blunt your hypertrophy as much as people would indicate but but the real reason i'm not a big fan of it is i just don't see much of an upside for for you know if you're a healthy individual I, i just don't understand why you'd be going with this super high vitamin c supplementation we also talked a little bit about betaine. There was a meta-analysis that came out looking at betaine's effect on a variety of uh, adiposity-related outcomes, so things like BMI, body weight, body fat percentage, stuff like that. Um, and I actually reviewed this in mass a few months back. But one of the things to keep in mind there is it was a meta-analysis, but there was like six total studies. And like I said, it, there were multiple indices of adiposity. So, like the analysis for just body fat, it didn't even contain all of those six. You know, be, maybe just hypothetically out of those six, four of them reported body fat. Uh, so, so for each of the outcomes, there was a different number of studies, but they were all equal to or less than six. And so, for for the ones that were like most important, looking at body fat percentage or fat mass, t- to me, I'm more interested in that than like BMI, for example. Um, what you find is that they were basically, the results were driven by two studies. It, it was Kaliva's paper from 2013 and Kaliva's paper from 2018 that, that were really driving those results. So it's kind of a cautionary tale when you look at a meta analysis, I think a lot of times we have a reflexive kind of, uh, response where we think, okay, well, these are the results of a meta. So this is like set in stone. You have to look into it and be like, okay, is this a you know, cumulative kind of pooled effect size from an enormous body of literature, or is this literally just the results of two studies? And so if it's literally the results of two studies, then you have to proceed with a lot more caution than if it's like, hey, we found 30 studies on the topic, and here's a very nice, tight confidence interval that we calculated. So um, another thing I wanted to bring up, so last week's episode, I talked about uh a meta with sodium bicarbonate supplementation i forgot to highlight a very important detail with that so uh it it did find that uh sodium bicarbonate significantly increases strength endurance but not maximal strength something important to keep in mind there was an enormous outlier uh for the muscular endurance outcomes and uh so, so they they did a very nice job on the meta by the way and they said hey there's an outlier that's a good step. <laughs> if you're doing it, if you're doing a meta-analysis and you notice an enormous outlier, you should do something about it. Uh, unfortunately, a lot don't. But what they did is, okay, huge outlier. Let's retest it with that outlier removed as a sensitivity analysis. And what they found is the results were still significant without that big outlier. So it didn't change the conclusion. But it does mean that when you see those effect sizes that were closer to 0.4-ish, those are probably overestimates of the effect of, uh, of sodium bicarbonate on muscular endurance. It was probably closer to the 0.2, 0.25 range. So, so it, it was quite an outlier, but the results were still statistically significant without it. It's just, you have to keep that in mind when you interpret that, that effect size. Um, now I wanted to go through a couple other meta-analyses from the list really quick here. Um, these are ones that i've actually reviewed in mass i i really like to review metas in mass because i I find meta analyses to be really fascinating um one was about alcohol consumption and recovery following resistance exercise and so uh what i found most surprising with this one was that there's actually a decent number of studies showing no meaningful effect of like pretty heavy alcohol consumption when, when it comes to recovery from exercise. So like actually looking at performance recovery, it looks like even after like some pretty moderate intakes, people can get it together, suck it up and go perform on the dynamometer, you know, mm-hmm. that they, they can get it together, uh, which, which I was a little bit surprised. I thought that the effects on the actual performance recovery would be a little bit more dramatic. But the studies that do tend to show impaired recovery tend to be performed in males, they tend to use particularly strenuous exercise protocols, and they tend to use higher doses of alcohol. And the the, the male-female one, I don't think that one's necessarily intuitive, but the other two are quite intuitive, right? So um, the idea is they can suck it up and pull it together and perform well, but it's for like... A pretty basic low volume dynamometer task, right? So if it were a skilled sport performance or a very vigorous full body bout of training, that might've looked a little bit different, you know, intuitively that, that seems correct to me. I
1: mean, what about Jordan though?
0: I don't know anything about Jordan.
1: Count the rings, baby.
0: Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't know if we want to use Michael Jordan's physical uh, athletic feats as our like well that's a pretty typical response you know but uh but um another thing to keep in mind though is that when it comes to short-term recovery you know moderate to heavy alcohol intake does affect things like protein synthesis sleep quality and a number of different hormones so even if An impairment in recovery doesn't show up on a simple dynamometry task that doesn't mean you know ah okay then like eight drinks a day from now on that'll be fine because it will affect protein synthesis your ability to sleep and those effects could be cumulative throughout a training program Uh, and like i said when, when we start moving the task to full body exercise or exercise that requires a great deal of skill and coordination I don't have a lot of confidence that those results will still hold up. I think the more strenuous the activity gets uh, and the more skilled it gets, the more likely that you're going to suffer a little bit from that heavy alcohol intake. Mm -hmm. Now, an important thing to keep in mind, obviously, the dose is critical here. One or two drinks, I'm starting to feel really confident that, you know, I just can't see that having a huge impact on training the next day, even with pretty strenuous workouts and pretty skilled movements, if we're talking about a drink or two. But some of these studies actually use surprisingly high alcohol doses. I mean,
1: most of them do.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm a, It's a little bit surprising. I think I'm used to just like assuming ah, the IRB won't let you get away with anything. Yeah. But like dude, some of these were really given some decent alcohol doses.
1: So, So one thing worth noting, I think for the listeners is that one of the things that at least like early studies in a particular area will do is they'll, they'll intentionally design a study to find an effect. Um, cause you know, par- partially you're dealing with like positive publication bias. Like if you find a statistically significant difference, um, the finding is a little bit easier to get published generally. Um, and also like, you know, it, early research in an area is kind of like proof of concept work. Like if we push an idea to an extreme, will it have an impact? And then subsequent research can kind of refine that where it's like, okay, like let's pull back from this extreme a little bit and see kind of like what this dose response looks like. Um, So a, a good example of that I think is the like muscle damage and recovery research. Like bro, that—that's immediately what came to mind. Some of yeah. the fucking muscle damage protocols used in the research are outrageous. Like I—I I saw one that was like a hundred straight maximal eccentric reps on, <laughs> uh, on for like knee extension. Like dude, yeah, your quads are gonna be toast. A, a good example of this was. Um, I can't remember if it was if it was knee extension or elbow flexion. It was one of the two. Um, but it was it was like it was like 50 or so maximally centric reps in completely untrained people. Um, and one of the things they were looking at in the study was the proportion of I forget what the exact what exactly they they termed these subjects, but it was like people who had extreme responses to it. And they defined extreme responses as if memory serves, uh, decrements in maximal isometric force output of greater than 70%. Oh, man. And so, you know, we're talking like, dude, you you bench press 300 pounds and by the end of this test, you can no longer put up 90. Like, that's that's the level of fatigue we're talking about. (laughs) Um, And it was like if memory serves, I want to say like 30% of the female subjects and like 15% of the male subjects met that criteria or criterion. And so like, dude, that is, that is a non negligible proportion of the subjects. And so, you know, this, I'm kind of reasoning by analogy here or not reasoning by analogy, but just using this as an illustration. So uh, if you're looking at like muscle damage research, you need to look at it and think like, okay, okay, you know, muscle damage is a thing and like this particular uh, intervention may affect the time course of recovery, but does this protocol look like how my training might look? And and oftentimes the answer is no, and it's more of like a proof of concept thing. And so like Trex was saying that the alcohol literature to this point, I imagine it was kind of frustrating to be one of these researchers like <laughs> early on uh, in, in this area of literature where I, uh, man, I remember one study where, um, it it was, it was the one that everyone cites about, uh, about alcohol reducing muscle protein synthesis. Um, and I, I want to say the alcohol intake amounted to like either 12 or 14 standard drinks on average. And it was just like straight vodka. Like they gave people either protein vodka or protein and vodka and like rip to those people because that had to suck um but it was it was straight up they put them through a pretty grueling workout and then it's like all right buddy gotta take 14 shots now (laughs) um and like so yeah that did reduce muscle protein synthesis but then the question is like well if it was like three drinks would it have done anything who's to say um I feel like I'm rambling, but all of all of this is to say, I wonder what it was like to be one of the early researchers in this area where it's just like, well, OK, let's uh let's put people through a workout. Let's have them drink 10 standard drinks and then uh see how their performance is tomorrow. Bet it's going to suck. Uh, and then it doesn't like, dude, they were probably freaking out because you have to assume those really high dosages were kind of the alcohol like analog to a hundred maximal eccentric reps. Like the researchers had to be assuming like, oh yeah, this is going to fuck them up. And then it didn't. And they were probably like, what the hell's going on?
0: Yeah. That would just be such a strange setting to be 14 drinks deep. You're just like, (laughs) I just, I can't imagine just being in a lab full of strangers, 14 drinks in like what that mindset
1: is. Oh, actually though, I just had a thought that is, that is actually maybe on topic and relevant. Um, so in, in a recent episode, maybe like two or three back, we had a question about how to prevent hangovers. And mm-hmm. so I talked about, um, congener content in alcohol and how that seems to be related to likelihood of hangovers and severity of hangover symptoms. One of the things to note about the alcohol and exercise literature is I haven't seen one of these studies that didn't use vodka. Like that's, That's like the standard, okay, we're going to put someone through a workout and we're going to give them alcohol and see what happens. Yeah. Alcohol of choice. Um, And so I wonder how well these findings generalize to people who don't just straight up drink vodka. So if you remember from that episode, um, vodka is, if you want to go out and just get like shit face drunk and not pay for it quite as badly the next day. Alcohol or uh, vodka seems to probably be your best choice, um, just because it has the the lowest congener content. So, congeners again are are um, kind of outputs of the fermentation process other than just ethanol. Um, so, like butanol, methanol, et cetera, et cetera, um, and so like alcoholic beverages with higher congener contents. Seem to to give you like worse hangovers the next day, and so yeah, if memory serves, like literally all of those studies use vodka, and so I mean like eight shots of vodka and like eight glasses of red wine very well could have entirely different effects on uh, on performance the next day. Yeah, and I just realized that.
0: Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, so yeah, it's something to keep in mind. Okay, moving on. Um, there's also a meta-analysis about carnitine supplementation, looking at exercise-induced muscle damage and recovery uh, fr- from strenuous exercise. And this was another one I reviewed in mass. And, and the, the authors reported that uh, soreness was significantly reduced by L-carnitine supplementation uh, at all the time points measured. So 0, 24, 48, 72, and 96 hours uh, after a strenuous bout of exercise. And they also reported some effects on creatine kinase, myoglobin, lactate dehydrogenase as well. Uh, now, I re-ran the meta-analysis a little bit differently because I thought it was important to account for the correlated measurements within an in- individual study and also to model the time effect from 0 to 24 to 48 and so on. And so I, I did the meta-analysis a little bit differently. And if you're curious about, uh, how different that went, you can check out, uh, the mass issue that that's in. But, uh, after rerunning it, it looks like, you know, only soreness and creatine kinase were really like significantly impacted in my opinion. And it was really only for those first 48 hours post-exercise. So my, my analysis was a lot more conservative, um, and the results weren't quite as dramatic. Um. And, you know, it's open to interpretation. You know, you, you, it's two different approaches to how to analyze the data. So I, it would not, I'm not saying like they were wrong, but uh, obviously my bias is clear. I like my analysis best. You know, <laughs> that's pretty obvious. But um, something to keep in mind there is that the effect on soreness was enough to lower subjectively reported soreness by like 1.5 points. On a scale from 0 to 10 so you know instead of if if they say hey how sore are you feeling instead of saying a 9 you would say a 7.5 right so um not negligible but not necessarily dramatic um it's kind of uh kind of subjective in terms of how much that matters to you but an important thing to keep in mind is uh is, is that the literature looking at carnitine's effects on on these outcomes and really a lot of the carnitine literature in general very, very inconsistent. There's a lot of inconsistencies, a lot of heterogeneity where you see like, oh, this study reported a pretty notable effect and this study had nothing at all. There's some very divergent uh, patterns in the literature looking at carnitine's effects on, like I said, just about everything. Um, There's research looking at carnitine's effects on performance, um, uh, I think muscle growth, uh, looking at fat loss, looking at... uh, Glycemic control. So like insulin blood glucose and there's just a great deal of inconsistency So i'm a little bit hesitant to to say oh, yeah carnitine for soreness and recovery definitely go for it I have some reservations because of that inconsistency and I also have reservations because I think there are better Supplementation candidates out there, um, you know I'm kind of a broken record about this but in my opinion if you really wanted to take something Uh, To try to uh, mitigate some of that post-exercise soreness, I think probably a really good option would be uh, some kind of really uh, phytonutrient-rich, antioxidant-rich extract coming from something like pomegranate or watermelon or beetroot. You know, one of these kind of more plant-based extracts or juices that just tends to be packed with a ton of antioxidants, but also a ton of different phytonutrients Uh, Other than than antioxidants as well. So I I just think you can get more from your recovery supplement than just saying Oh, I'll take carnitine alone when you've got these other supplementation candidates Which frankly you can also just get from food, which is a good option But there's these other recovery candidates where you're like, okay, this will probably help my soreness but bring all these other uh, Potential benefits with it when it comes to ergogenic effects and better recovery effects as well Okay, I've got one more um, and this is a little bit of a sneak peek because this is a meta analysis that I am. Uh, it's it's going to be coming out. Oh wait, no. This episode goes up July second, so my mass article is going to go up July first. So this is not a sneak peek. You look surprised. Oh yeah, by that.
1: yeah. I I, f- I was thinking we were going to be publishing this episode next week. No, it's going to no. be in two weeks. Correct. We're not recording next week because surprise announcement. Well, you know this. Uh, Linz and I are buying our first house. Yeah. Which is fun and cool. Uh, so dear listeners, if I start expressing more just like bourgeois trash sentiment on this podcast after becoming a property owner, uh, don't let me get away with it. That's will. Uh, it's not good.
0: Yeah. So anyway. this is uh i I wrote a mass article about this going up july 1st which when you're listening to this will be yesterday but uh it's a meta-analysis looking at the effects of arginine supplementation on athletic performance and what they did was they looked at the effects of arginine on what they categorized as aerobic outcomes and what they categorized as anaerobic outcomes um and so the 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 results indicated that there was, like, a pretty big effect uh, for aerobic outcomes. The effect size was 0.84, which is, I mean, like, arginine, if you've been following the nitric oxide-based literature, you're like, yeah, arginine, its effect is, like, maybe slightly better than nothing, but it's generally not super great. Uh, So, I saw 0.84, and I was like, that is surprising. Um, (laughs) And, yeah, and and then the effect on anaerobic outcomes was a little bit more down-to-earth. It was 0.24. But again, that's like that's like right about equal with the citrulline malate literature. But if, if you look at any of the uh, research on the topic, any intro or discussion section is going to be like, yeah, we used to care about arginine. We don't anymore. We got citrulline. We're better off for it, you know?
1: Yeah. and And, and to be clear, like, isn't the biggest reason people don't care much about arginine anymore? Like, isn't the main reason that like... of it that you take is sequestered by the gut and doesn't actually reach systemic circulation.
0: You'll get some different estimates about the exact percentage when it comes to to the bioavailability and how much of it gets, uh, you know, broken down in the gut and through first pass metabolism. But the short answer is yes. So you take an oral dose of arginine and there is a substantial amount of arginine that gets utilized or broken down before it ever gets to the bloodstream. And so uh, the whole purpose of arginine supplementation for performance theoretically is to to increase blood arginine levels so that it can promote nitric oxide production. And what we found in the research is that if you take a dose of citrulline, you'll actually increase blood arginine levels more efficiently and more effectively than if you took oral arginine instead. And so for a lot of people, it's kind of an open and shut case, the the performance data for citrulline are a little bit more promising. Mechanistically, it, it's really difficult to, to overcome that and say like, oh, well, yeah, citrulline has great bioavailability. Arginine doesn't. It's kind of just like, why, why, would you, why would you go with the arginine? Mm-hmm. It, it's just really difficult to justify. So I'm not going to give away all of the juicy details uh, that, that you can find in the Mass article because it would take a while. But, uh, but basically, I, th- there were some issues and I'm just going to, there were some issues. There were some effect <laughs> sizes that weren't calculated correctly. And uh, so I, I get into the details of it. I, you know, I was going to recalculate it, but there were a lot of issues and, and I thought it was best to just kind of leave it and, uh, and, and look at some of the reasons why those effect sizes looked so big. But the, the real take-home point is that they aren't that big. Um, and so uh, it, it's one of those things where when you look at a meta-analysis, It's important to read it just as critically as when you read, uh, an original piece of research, right? So you you can't just, I know I mentioned this before, you can't just say, well, it's a meta analysis, so I know it's good. And I know that this is the real effect size. You know, I think people have gotten into the practice of very critically reading individual research articles, but you have to have that same, that same perspective with meta analyses and say, wow, this effect size is way bigger than I thought. You have to be open to it and say, "Man, maybe I had, maybe I just completely misread the pulse of this literature." But you also have to say, "Is it possible that maybe some of these effect sizes aren't quite accurate?" You know.
1: Yeah, I mean, w- when a non-negligible proportion of the researchers in our field don't have the statistical toolkit to just do like traditional research, well, <laughs> uh, they sure as hell don't have the statistical toolkit to perform a meta-analysis properly. Yeah. Right. But
0: anyway, the take home point is if if you see this, (laughs) if you see this meta analysis and you're like, wow, that's very surprising. Maybe I should try arginine. I would encourage you not to. Uh, I, I just I don't think there's really much promise when it comes to arginine supplementation. I think we I think we have plenty of literature to say if you find that line of research to be compelling, a much more promising option would be going with citrulline, citrulline malate or some kind of nitrate based supplement. Um, Okay, I had a couple other uh, metas there, but I think we probably ought to move on to the Q&A, get some of those in. Works for me. Cool. So I've got a quick one here that I'm just going to read for myself. I basically had two questions. This is a pretty common one. Um, It was two people uh, independently who who, uh, submitted questions about tuna consumption. And so I know a lot of people like to consume a decent amount of tuna, canned tuna, Uh, Because it's convenient, it's usually a pretty affordable protein source uh, compared to some others. And so I I know, especially like, you know, you're on a tight budget, you're in college, you're in a dorm room, you don't have like a full kitchen access. So a canned protein source, that's pretty affordable, very attractive option for sure. Um, But the question was, you know, you hear about tuna and potential, potentially high mercury levels in it. And the question was like, well, how much can I really get away with on a weekly basis? Um, And so like, I feel... I'm inclined to just kind of lean on the FDA's guidance on that. Like, I, I don't claim to have expertise when it comes to, like, toxicity of heavy metals or anything like that. So I usually just lean on on, on published guidelines for that type of thing. And so I, I can tell you what the FDA says. Uh, and if, if you have no interest in their opinion, then you can tune this out for a couple minutes. But
1: the way they categorize a serving... What a disclaimer. <laughs> I don't know just feel free to ignore if you're a science denier <laughs> sure <laughs> but uh anyway <laughs> so th- they call a serving
0: for an adult four ounces you know it's about the size of your palm if you're looking at a little cut of meat so what what they do is they categorize it into best choices good choices and choices to avoid when it comes to fish consumption and so there there are different kinds of tuna uh, so the best choices, there is one one variety of tuna. It says tuna, canned light. Um, so that's in the best choices category. But one of the things that's really interesting is the best choices category for fish intake, they recommend two to three servings a week. So like, you know, some of the people, I, I've seen people online who are like, hey, I eat three cans of tuna a day. Should I cut back to two a day? And it's like more, probably closer to two a week <laughs> would be a more comfortable number, you know? So so that, that's something to keep in mind is that they're kind of top end for the good choices. They're they're recommending two to three servings a week. The good choices, which they say one serving a week w- would be would be advisable. Uh, they do have uh of a, a tuna variety, it says albacore slash white tuna, and they also have yellow fin tuna in that good choices category. Um, in the choices to avoid category with the highest mercury levels, their their recommendation is like, just kind of don't eat it unless you, you really have to. And like, if you do eat it, it's probably like a, you know, once in a while kind of thing. Um, not like a, a staple in your weekly diet. They put big eye tuna in the choices to avoid to avoid category. So, that you know, like I said i'm not a heavy metals toxicity expert I don't really have a lot of nuance to add to that, but a lot of times people ask about that question, and that in my opinion, is kind of the simplest uh the simplest uh guidance to give on that all right so uh you've got a question here
1: yeah so uh <laughs> there were there were probably a dozen people who've asked over the last three months uh questions about is it okay to split workouts up throughout the day versus doing them all in one session? You know, basically, uh, people are, are at homes more, um, their gyms are closed. And so they're like, okay, I'm cooped up all day. Uh, I want to do some sort of training at home. And, uh, you know, is it fine if I just do like a set or two every 30 minutes versus, Doing all of my training in like a a compressed, like hour, hour and a half of time. Um, and like, yeah, it's fine. Um, so I, I think in general, uh, splitting workouts up into multiple sessions or even like spacing it all throughout a day is likely to have a neutral to positive effect. It could, it could potentially have a negative effect if basically you, you use that as an excuse to massively increase training volume because you don't accumulate a bunch of fatigue in a concentrated period of time. And so you just kind of go crazy with it. Um, but assuming you're not doing that, it probably has a neutral to positive effect. So the early studies looking at the effects of, uh, like one a day workouts versus two a day workouts were performed on soccer players and weightlifters by Hakanen and Hartman, um, respectively. And those studies had some pretty promising results. Not all of the differences were statistically significant, but there were some significant differences leaning in favor of multiple daily sessions versus just one. And, and again, this is talking about like doing the same volume, but splitting it up, not doing multiple sessions as a way to increase volume. Um, so yeah, they, they, ten- they found some differences statistically in favor of splitting it up into multiple workouts, some non-significant differences that kind of leaned in favor of splitting it up into multiple workouts. Um, and so pretty promising results overall. There've been some, a, a handful of more recent studies, uh, in the area, including one from about two years ago by Shiao or xiao um, that, that haven't found any, any any statistically significant or even like notable non-significant effects one way or the other. Um, so overall, this body of, of research, like I said, kind of leans neutral to positive. Um, if you split your workouts up into multiple daily sessions, it may have a small beneficial effect on strength and possibly hypertrophy, uh, or it may be similarly effective to just doing it all in one session. Uh, like I said, unless you use this as an excuse to massively increase volume, uh, to the point that you can't recover from it, I don't really see it having any negative effects. Um, but you know, probably don't expect a night and day difference from it.
0: That makes sense.
1: All right. Uh, next question for you, Trex from, uh, Nicola. Uh, Nicola asks, how does hypothalamic amenorrhea affect hypertrophy? If eating at maintenance or surplus, does hypothalamic amenorrhea still have a negative impact on muscle building and athletic performance?
0: So, this is a really good question. And I think hypothalamic is really the key word here. So, uh, a lot of times people focus on the amenorrhea portion and they say, okay, well, Due to low energy availability and high exercise volumes, you know, I either have completely lost my menstrual cycle or it's become quite irregular. And so people kind of view it in many cases as whether or not uh, a normal menstrual cycle is present. But I, I think the time course of recovery is a little bit more nuanced than that. So there are a number of studies that are kind of interventions aimed at restoring normal menstrual cycles Uh, in female athletes who have experienced hypothalamic amenorrhea and those interventions uh, intuitively the approach is quite simple right we need to get back to uh, a more appropriate level of energy availability and we need to uh, have a more moderate approach to training intensity and volume and so what's interesting is in the course of those studies I think the the outcome if you just view it from the perspective of did the the normal menstrual cycle return uh, a lot of those studies tend to fail but that doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't positive things that occur in the process right so you can have some aspects of recovery present without fully restoring a normal menstrual cycle so you can have a restoration of some of your performance some of your ability to to achieve hypertrophy in the process just from you know taking control of training volume again getting energy available uh energy availability into a more suitable range so so it's kind of tricky and and what i would say is when we look at hypothalamic amenorrhea like i said hypothalamic is the key word and when we see uh really low energy availability in place the effects on the hypothalamus uh, lead to some pretty widespread downstream effects so we see alterations And growth hormone, IGF-1, testosterone, estrogen, thyroid hormones. It's kind of an entire hormonal milieu from the top down from the hypothalamus in response to this low energy availability. And we see effects on the ability to gain muscle. Obviously, this isn't an ideal anabolic environment, also not an ideal environment for just general performance, I think. And so if you can restore energy availability to a better spot and kind of get that up into a better range. I think it's very likely I'm I'm being a bit speculative here, but I think it's very likely that that you can start to reverse some of the difficulties associated with hypothalamic amenorrhea. So, I think you might be able to see uh, some of those tr- you know those shorter term improvements in performance and the ability to induce body composition changes. Maybe before you get a full restoration of a normal menstrual cycle. So re- restoring a normal menstrual cycle tends to be highly variable from person to person. And the interventions, even with really extreme interventions, there's a lot of variability for when it does and doesn't work. So th- there's interventions where they, they take a really extreme approach. And on top of, you know, the dietary and the exercise modifications, they also inject leptin. Uh, and even w- with some pretty extreme measures like that, the restoration of the menstrual cycle, the time course, and just plainly whether or not it actually worked, it was extremely variable from person to person. So I would say if you're like in like if you have hypothalamic amenorrhea and you have not addressed the training volume and intensity issues and you have not addressed the energy availability issues, it's very likely that your performance, and your ability to induce hypertrophy are going to be impaired to some extent. But if you've taken some of those steps when it comes to adjusting exercise habits and adjusting energy availability, I think it's quite possible that you can start restoring some of those things back to a more normal level. So... In the short term, yeah, hypothalamic amenorrhea not great for hypertrophy because of that series of, of hormonal effects of it. But as you start to restore those, I, I think you can start to restore the ability to perform at your best and induce hypertrophy. Okay, Greg, what do you got next here?
1: Uh, so a question from Grimes uh, asking, how should we approach kids and adolescents in resistance training? How young is too young? Are there additional safety concerns when it comes to growth plates? And if so, what adjustments to training can be made to avoid injuring them? Should heavy singles with a high percent of 1RM be avoided? And are there any other guidelines around the topic? Um, So I would recommend checking out a recent review paper by Allison Myers, um, title of which is Resistance Training for Children and Adolescents. And uh, so I'm going to address the question about like safety and growth plates first, because I think that is uh, especially like parents primary concern and answering that question isn't entirely straightforward. So a, a common line you'll hear from like, quote unquote, evidence based fitness professionals is like, oh, they used to say that training would stunt your growth, but we now know that that is wrong. Um and I don't think that's entirely true. So this is this is an absence of evidence versus evidence of absence question. So there is no evidence that I am aware of that lifting that that children or adolescents lifting weights will stunt their growth. Um however, I am also not aware of like v- super strong conclusive evidence demonstrating that uh, resistance training won't stunt their growth. And I think that's an important distinction. I personally don't think it, it it's going to stunt their growth. Um, and the research that's on the topic where, you know, let's say you have a three-month or a six-month study um, and you have a, a group performing resistance training versus a group that doesn't. Um, and it's, you know, at, at kid, with kids or adolescents of an age where one would still be expecting growth to occur, Over those three months or six months or even up to a year, it seems like growth in a resistance training versus non-resistance training group is pretty similar. Uh, To have, say, like really conclusive evidence, what one would hope for would be like, you know, you have a group of kids that starts training at like seven years old and that goes all the way through until they're like 18 or 19 and you have a group that doesn't do any resistance training and you look to see do they wind up the same height like that's the sort of conclusive evidence that one would need to be like super highly confident that lifting doesn't stunt growth that study doesn't exist i'm i don't know if it will ever exist but what i will say is that there is no evidence currently to suggest that lifting stunts growth um which i think probably isn't as like strong of a pro lifting statement as uh a lot of our audience would hope that i would give but Hey, it's the state of the research as it is, baby. You can deal with it. Um, so, in, in terms of of like mechanistically, so um, this person asked about uh, like injuries to growth plates, and and I think this is where like the the fear that lifting might stunt growth started. Where they're they're like, okay, so bone elongation occurs at growth plates, and if you put high forces. On these growth plates, maybe that's going to damage them and therefore decrease rate of bone elongation and therefore stunt people's growth. And I'm, I'm not aware of any evidence that that happens with resistance training. And in fact, I would be very surprised if that happened with resistance training just because like, dude, if you want to talk about forces on bones, um, the the forces that bones are undergoing with resistance training are so much smaller than just like kids running and jumping and doing kid stuff like dude I remember I remember vaguely being like you know three three four years old and just seeing like what the tallest thing I could jump off of without hurting myself was um and like (laughs) that was putting way higher forces on my bones than like doing a max deadlift at that age would have you know um and so like Yeah, dude, if kids just like running and jumping and jumping off of stuff and being kids isn't damaging growth plates, like lifting weights probably wouldn't as well. If you do have a growth plate fracture that can just like completely stop bone growth. And that's that's not good. Like if you had a a growth plate fracture in one femur and not the other one leg's just going to wind up way longer than the other. Like, that—that that is pretty serious business. Um, but in terms of, like, forces on growth plates being sufficient to damage them with resistance training, especially in children and adolescents, like, th- that's, that's just on its face implausible. Um, so you, you probably don't need to worry about that. In terms of things, k- kind of like best practices, one is just, like, Kids always need to be monitored in the weight room because you know there is the potential for injury. Um, there's always the potential for injury with everyone, but you know kids just generally don't have as good of a as good of an attention span as adults do. They often don't have quite as good of body control, um, and if, if you're training kids in like a group setting, they may be you know like. Let's say for whatever reason, you're doing like youth weightlifting training. Uh, if you're doing weightlifting training with people in their 20s and someone's like doing snatches or cleaning jerks, everyone's aware of who's throwing weight over their head and where not to step if you don't want to get a bar dropped on you. Like fucking eight year olds probably aren't. Um, so, <laughs> you know, you need to be really observant about that and and just like mm. The types of weight room injuries that come from lack of attention, like dropping weights on people and dropping plates on your own foot, etc. like That stuff's probably way more common with kids than it would be with older adolescents and certainly adults. So so you need to be super cognizant of that sort of weight room injury. Um, And then when it comes to how you actually train kids until, until they hit puberty, you should probably mostly be focusing on generally developing skills. So both like athletic skills and also weight room skills. So make sure they have good control of their body and the exercises that they're doing. You're, you're focusing intently on, are they performing the exercise properly versus are you loading them up with a lot of weight? Um, so motor skills are way more plastic and you can learn them way faster when, when people are young. So that is like the ideal time to teach them how to, to properly perform exercises. And in terms of the outcomes of training, um, you know, going super close to failure and using super heavy weights, like the juice just isn't worth the squeeze with, with children and like young adolescents. Um, just because like the strength and hypertrophy effects aren't as great. So the research looking at, um, resistance training interventions in, uh, like kids and early adolescents before like really hitting puberty hard versus like during and post puberty tends to indicate that, If you put them on the same training program, the strength and hypertrophy effects during and after puberty are substantially greater than before puberty. So before puberty, you know, teach them technique, work on weight room skills, um, and then once puberty really starts kicking in, then if you want to start ramping up loads more, ramping up volume more, training them a little bit closer to failure, you know, one, hopefully they should be prepared for it by then because you've been kind of laying the groundwork with skill development to that point. Um, and two, they'll, they'll just be able to derive larger benefits from it kind of once puberty is online. Um, so yeah, those, those would be my general recommendations. Um, and yeah, the the biggest thing as far as injuries go is like, just keep a super close eye on everyone, um, and make sure that, make sure that you drill technique over and over and over again before adding any substantial amount of external load.
0: All right, good stuff. Um, Based on the time, I think we should probably jump ahead to our rapid fire questions. I want to just go through. You know, we get a lot of questions uh, submitted to us. Some of them require quite a lengthy explanation, but there have been a number of questions where I'm like, I'll answer that in like a couple sentences. And so I've got a little list I want to go through here just because, you know, we want the listeners to get their questions answered, but some of these don't really make it into the show as like a big 10-minute thing we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm just going to go through some of mine here. One was, um, is it likely that habitual intake of nitrate-rich vegetables, such as beets and spinach and really any uh, leafy green, can those induce the same ergogenic benefits as like a highly concentrated supplement with nitrate? And the answer is hell yeah, definitely. Uh I recommend that actually because if you look at some of the independent research on a lot of the beetroot supplement products on the market, there are actually some notable quality concern uh quality control concerns in terms of the actual nitrate dose that's present in some of those. Um cuz I mean nitrates tricky, like even in uh, even in just like produce, you, you can get a, a great deal of variability. So it, it's hard to know the exact dose you're getting. I think a very reasonable uh, response to that is to just generally eat uh, a diet with plenty of nitrate-rich vegetables in it. Um, but there, there's direct research on this, so it's not just kind of speculative. There was a study by Fleck and colleagues in 2016 um where they looked at whether or not beetroot juice uh was more effective uh than than a nitrate matched dose of sodium nitrate and, and they did find that there was a slight difference um b- but but the beetroot juice actually was a little bit uh a little bit more uh had slightly better effects than sodium nitrate alone. So one of the things I find interesting about going the food route is that you're not just getting nitrate content, but w- whichever food you're going with, you're typically going to get a number of other antioxidants in that are just naturally occurring in the food matrix. And there, there can be some synergistic effects between Uh, the antioxidants in the food matrix and the nitrate itself. Of course, in that study, they use beetroot juice, which is a supplement, but the same thing would apply to whatever food source you might use. Um, And there was uh, another study by Clifford and colleagues that found the same thing where the beetroot juice was a little bit more effective than the sodium nitrate itself. So some of these other compounds in the the foods and the juices you might use are contributing in a non-negligible way. Uh, And there was a study, I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head, but there was a study where they actually tried to do an intervention where they said, instead of giving you a nitrate supplement, we're going to encourage you to eat this list of foods that's higher in nitrate. And what they showed uh, in that study was, there were positive effects associated with the intervention but the intervention itself was effective at increasing nitrate intake enough to get up into those ergogenic ranges that we see with supplementation so the really nice thing about nitrate is we it's very realistic to eat enough uh foods rich in nitrate foods and 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 food derived juices that you could get the type of dose we would deliver with a supplement that's a pretty unique thing for a lot of supplements and the even cooler thing is You have a much better idea of exactly what your nitrate content might be if you have a diverse array of nitrate-rich foods. Um, You don't have to worry about just getting a supplement that's a total dud. You can kind of diversify that a little bit. And the foods are likely to have some other phytonutrients present in the food that have either a neutral or positive effect on the Action of the nitrate that you're taking in so not only is it okay to go with with uh, You know foods and beverages rather than some of these supplements But you could argue in some cases is actually a, a more favorable way to go and depending on what supplement you're going with another question I got uh, is about l-citrulline um, basically Should I be taking it? Is there a best time to take it? Um, What kind of dosing strategies are advisable? So if you're going to go the L-citrulline route, the the standard dose you're going to see in the literature is between three and six grams a day. You might as well err on the safe side and go with the six grams, in my opinion. If you're going citrulline malate rather than L-citrulline, that's usually dosed at six to eight grams. And the ratio of citrulline to malate is usually one to one or two to one. Um, however, there was a study that actually tested that, like to verify those label claims. They were not what you would call accurate. <laughs> uh, they, they weren't way off, but even the ones that claimed to be two to one were more like one and a half to one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but in any case, what I would recommend with citrulline malate is generally going with the two to one ratio of citrulline to malate, whether or not that's the exact ratio. Um, and probably going with the eight, the eight gram dose just to make sure you're getting plenty of citrulline out of it. Um, one of the questions was does timing matter? Um and generally I, I would take it all in one dose rather than splitting it up. And I would take that dose around one to two hours before exercise. The studies showing ergogenic benefits when it comes to strength and power outcomes, they typically give it an hour before training um, or, or before exercise testing. Theoretically, looking at the pharmacokinetics, you could justify that two hours should be just as effective as one hour. Anywhere in the one to two hour range should be fine. But if you want to go with like, okay, the, the studies that have looked at one hour and two hour dosing in the same study, there's certainly no benefit to, to going with two hours instead of one. And if you want to just make it simple and say, okay, the studies that work, what are they doing? it's usually giving six to eight grams of citrulline malate and it's usually giving it an hour before exercise. So I would not split it up throughout the day and that's probably the the dosing that I'd go with. And again, it's important to have realistic expectations. We're talking about a pooled effect size of about 0.2. That's a nice thing, but it's not something that's gonna completely revolutionize your training. Question from Mike about the optimal speed for consumption of a protein bolus. Should you chug your protein shake, drink it slowly, uh, drink half of it fast, then sip. It doesn't matter. So so when it comes to protein timing, this is something we've discussed many times on the show. Uh, I think it's advisable to split your daily protein into, I would say, somewhere between three and five boluses throughout the day. The exact speed of consumption doesn't matter because... You know the the term that Helms always uses is the conga line analogy where like we 've got these boluses kind of working through our digestive system one after another, and any kind of precision we think that we 're applying when it, when it 's in the context of a mixed meal that has fiber that 's altering the digestion rate, it has fat altering the digestion rate, the bulk of food in the gi tract there 's a lot of different contextual factors that even if we wanted to micromanage that speed of bolus consumption. It's simply out of our hands at that point. There are too many other factors associated with the rate of digestion and the rate at which those amino acids are going to appear in the blood. So a uh, simple answer, the, the rate at which you're consuming those boluses doesn't matter, but I do think it makes sense to have somewhere between three and five relatively equal sized protein boluses throughout the day. Another protein question from, from Adam asking about high protein diets. Uh, and uh, potentially a link to kidney stones. And so this is something I looked into, you know, if, if you're a healthy person, a lot of times people talk about kidney failure or kidney disease with high protein diets, if you have an underlying kidney issue, uh, you know, such as like advanced kidney disease or something like that, then they will tell you you shouldn't be on a high protein diet, and that's very much true. But a lot of times people misinterpret that thinking if I have a healthy kidney and I go on a high protein diet I'm going to give myself kidney disease or something like that the evidence is not consistent with that thought process at all uh, you know a, a person with a healthy kidney should be able to accommodate a high protein diet quite effectively within the ranges that we've actually studied in terms of protein intake um, and we've studied some pretty pretty wide ranges so um, when it comes to kidney stones there are a few different types of kidney stones that are made out of slightly different things and there certainly are uh, looking into it there are mechanistic um, reasons that you might at least be concerned about it like you could say okay well if i consume a high pro- a high protein diet it increases urinary excretion of this and this could increase the likelihood of kidney stone formation the the mechanistic uh connections are there But when you look at the more recent updates in the literature, it seems like the consensus for now is if you're a person who is predisposed to kidney stone formation, it might be something to take a look at. You might want to look at your total amount of protein and the types of protein that you're taking in specifically. But if you're a person with healthy kidneys and you have no predisposing factors you're not someone who is kind of naturally prone to kidney stone formation it doesn't seem like there's enough evidence to suggest that going on a high protein diet would make you more prone to having kidney stones it's one of those things where if the pathology is present is present or the the susceptibility is present before the diet then it might be something where there might be some connections there, but for a healthy kidney with no predisposing factors and no kind of underlying pathology, it doesn't seem like that link is uh, conclusively drawn in the research. And right now, like I said, the consensus seems to be probably not a big deal, but if you if you develop kidney stones, then you might want to take a look at your protein intake and the types of protein that you're consuming. And then finally, a question about L-theanine supplementation. Um, So we've talked about L-theanine in the past. One of the cool things about it is L-theanine, there's some evidence indicating it helps with relaxation, um, but but it's not sedative in nature. So a lot of times people will pair it with caffeine because it can kind of for lack of a better term, take the edge off of the caffeine, kind of reduce some of the jitteriness. And sometimes people get a little bit more anxious when they have high caffeine doses. So it should be able to attenuate some of those effects of caffeine, some of those unfavorable things that that some people experience, but it shouldn't make you sleepy in the process. So it's a really nice supplement to complement caffeine. Anyone that listens to the show knows that Greg and I are big caffeine fans, but like I do like to every now and then supplement theanine just to kind of take some of that off, you know, especially if I'm taking really high doses of caffeine. I think theanine complements that really well. In terms of the dosing, usually 100 to 200 milligrams should be fine with with your caffeine dose. Um, I I do know some people that it's almost like when they take higher theanine doses, I've talked to people anecdotally who say that they almost feel sleepy, even though there's not a sedative effect. They just kind of... I think they subjectively tie that sensation in that, that kind of relaxation. They tie that in with, with sedation and sleepiness. So they, they, they note that they kind of subjectively feel a little bit more sleepy. And so if that's you, then, then it's not for you. But, but if you take high doses of caffeine and you tend to get a little bit more jittery or anxious, it's something that might not hurt to try. And like I said, the dosing typically down around a hundred or 200 milligrams should do it.
1: All right, uh, I have a handful of rapid-fire questions as well. First is from Daffy Duck. Mr. Duck, thank you for listening. Greg, it's been five years since you wrote The Belt Bible. What, if anything, uh, has changed? Is it time for a rehashing on the subject of the powerlifting belt? Uh, Answer to that is no, not really. So 2014, 2015, I published an article on Stronger by Science titled The Belt Bible. That went through all of the research at the time on powerlifting belts. Um, there hasn't really been anything super noteworthy published since then, with the exception of one study in 2018 um, that was looking at kind of like mechanistically does increased intraabdominal pressure increase people's maximum capacity to exert hip extension torque? And it turned out it did. Uh, in that study, they weren't uh, they weren't using belts they were you know just using like various breathing techniques and the valsalva to to induce differences in intraabdominal pressure um but they did find that as intraabdominal pressure increased uh maximal voluntary hip extension torque also increased um and so that provides a, a plausible mechanism by which belts could work um that that's important because in the original article i I basically mentioned the fact that like, okay, here's like, maybe a reason belts could work, like maybe in- increased intra-abdominal pressure just allows your spine to, to not to anthropomorphize it too much, but I'm going to anthropomorphize it, uh, helps it feel safe and secure and therefore kind of allows muscles, you know, downstream to be able to exert more force feeling that like, okay, the spine's safe, everything else can kind of fire on on all cylinders. Um but you know th- that was that was just conjecture and not too long before writing that article um Stu McGill wrote a piece saying that like the way by which belts could work is if uh like spinal flexion occurs and something about like the the joint moments exerted by the belt in the presence of spinal flexion allows people to lift more. But if you're not flexing your spine, wearing a belt shouldn't help with maximal force output um and i was just like yeah you know with with all due respect Stu mcgill you know way more about the spine than i do uh but that strikes me as implausible because even when i don't flex my spine i feel like i can lift more with the belt maybe i'm crazy though um so anyway that that 2018 study helps uh helps counter that point to some degree showing that like you know in in lab conditions Just increasing intra-abdominal pressure does increase hip extension torque. Um, so that, that kind of adds another piece to the puzzle and, and gives a little bit more mechanistic underpinning for why belts might be effective for increasing force output. Um, but yeah, other than that, like nothing has really changed in the literature. Uh, I do not think that article is in need of an overhaul. Um, One article that is in need of an overhaul, though, is uh, one I wrote titled Grow Like a New Lifter Again that talks about myonuclear domain theory. Um, There was a a cool review on that that came out recently. It's going to be in the upcoming issue of Mass. Uh, You know, that content now is, is for Mass subscribers, but I will talk about that on the site at some point and will overhaul that article eventually. But yes. Uh, there there are articles on the site that are due for an overhaul, but the Belt Bible is not one of them. Uh, moving on, Victor asks, does acid parentheses, aspirin, blunt hypertrophy, or strength gains? And uh, my answer to Victor is, I don't know. Uh, however, it plausibly could. So NSAIDs, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, including ibuprofen and naproxen, um, have been shown to inhibit hypertrophy in healthy young subjects. Uh, they, they might actually improve hypertrophy in older subjects or, or subjects with just like higher baseline levels of inflammation. Basically, they're like, th- The inflammatory response in hypertrophy seems to have like a pretty hormetic response where if someone has low baseline levels of inflammation and they take high doses of NSAIDs, that knocks their inflammation levels down too low for optimal hypertrophy signaling. Whereas if someone's elderly or has higher inflammation levels, bringing their levels of inflammation down back into kind of the optimal hormetic range can actually improve hypertrophy. But yeah, for for most people in uh, cut off part of Victor's question, but basically he's a he's a young, healthy powerlifter. Um, yeah, so NSAIDs in that population it, at high enough doses probably do uh, decrease hypertrophy to some degree. Um, that's important background because acetylacid acid or aspirin is not an NSAID. Uh, however, they do work via similar mechanisms, and the mechanism by which aspirin works may actually make it slightly worse for hypertrophy than NSAIDs. So NSAIDs are primarily reversible COX-2 inhibitors. Um, COX-2 is stands for cyclooxygenase 2. Uh, that is an enzyme that is kind of like the, the bottleneck of the inflammatory response, so stuff happens upstream of the COX enzymes and then they're kind of like activated and then their downstream effects are the inflammatory response one gets after training, injury, muscle damage. Um, They're kind of like the master switch for a lot of inflammatory processes. And you have COX-1 and COX-2. NSAIDs don't seem to have much of an effect on COX-1, but they are reversible COX-2 inhibitors. Aspirin, is also a reversible cox-2 inhibitor and is also an irreversible cox-1 inhibitor um it's probably not worth getting into all of the details in terms of like how the different cyclooxygenases differ and like what what the slightly different downstream effects are um But aspirin does irreversibly inhibit COX-1 and does also have similar reversible COX-2 inhibitions, um, which which again is the primary mechanism of NSAIDs. So I I would think if NSAIDs effects on on COX-2 inhibition are the primary reason that they inhibit hypertrophy, I would think that aspirin would also inhibit hypertrophy at high enough dosages, um, because it's also a a reversible COX-2 inhibitor. The fact that it is an irreversible COX-1 inhibitor and could therefore maybe decrease the inflammatory response even further might actually make it an, an even slightly worse choice than NSAIDs for, uh, for hypertrophy and for lifters, um, but, but that's just my assumption based on very rough mechanisms. Uh, like I said, I'm not 100% sure because it hasn't shown up in the literature. So um, most of the studies that that look at this stuff do use ibuprofen or naproxen. So I'm not, I can't say with 100% confidence that, that reasonably high doses of aspirin would inhibit hypertrophy, but I fear and suspect that they might. Um, and that's about the best answer I can give. And then finally, there's a question from Tom. Uh, Tom asks, does being younger, so for example, 16 to 19 years old, affect strength negatively? Uh, I'm a younger lifter and found that I couldn't use standard linear progression to reach a 405 deadlift, which is supposedly intermediate. So first to answer like the text of the question, um, does does being younger affect strength negatively? As I alluded to previously, Um, puberty matters and people hit puberty and, and, you know, physically mature at different rates by 19 years old, you should, you should definitely be on the other side of puberty or at least like in it and very late in it. If you, if you are a late bloomer, um, by 16, it's kind of up in the air. Like most people are are probably going to be well into puberty by that point. Some people may just be entering puberty, um, but yeah, by, by 16, 17, you should probably be to the age where you do respond pretty well to resistance training, where you can gain strength and and muscle pretty well. Um, so, you know, if, if you ask this question like, hey, I'm 13 years old, then eh, the answer might be a little different. By 16 to 19, yeah, you should be able to gain muscle and strength pretty well. Um, but kind of like the subtext of this question is... Uh, Tom isn't isn't super enthused about his progress so far. He tried to do a standard linear progression and stalled out at some point before a four hundred five deadlift, which some website told him was like intermediate level. Like you should be able to get there on a linear progression when you first start lifting, and like don't worry about that, Tom. You're fine. Um, so I, I think one. This is something we talk about on the podcast all the time. People focus way too much on averages and not enough on kind of the variability surrounding those averages. Um, And then also like terminology, like the the way people use terms like novice, intermediate, advanced, I think is just utter and complete bullshit, Um, kind of secondary to the point about variability. So like, yeah, I think it's very plausible that when people start lifting for the first time, they get on a linear progression, maybe kind of on average, they stall out around a 405 deadlift initially. Personally, I think that's actually a little high. I don't think the majority of people get there on a linear progression, but I don't think that's... Completely unreasonable for for a number to shoot for within your first year or two of lifting, uh, if you're a, a healthy, relatively young male, um, and not like super super small. But like you know, don't worry about it. Like do your linear progression, take it as far as it'll let you take it, and then when you stall out, it's fine. Um, I have seen people stall on, or I've seen male lifters stall on linear progressions with the deadlift at numbers south of 315, and we're talking pounds here. Um, (laughs) The most extreme example I've seen of someone just being able to milk the shit out of a linear progression is uh, I had a client one time who came to me And I've talked about him on the podcast before, but he came to me with, if memory serves a 540 or 550 squat, uh, and I just assumed he had a fair amount of training experience. He filled out the the questionnaire to ask him about his training background, what programs he'd done previously. And he's like, yep, I've done eight months of starting strength. Um, and, you know, he came to me for coaching once he stalled on a linear progression and that linear progression shot him out with like a 550 squat. Um, so like yeah, dude, there's a shit ton of variability. Uh and wherever you wind up is fine. Like as long as you're putting appropriate effort and focus into your training, things are good. Um uh, maybe you respond like average, maybe you respond a little bit worse than average, maybe you respond considerably better than average it doesn't matter. As long as you're getting better, things are fine. And then the point about language usage, like I think that putting numbers on what it means to be a novice intermediate or advanced lifter is just stupid. Uh, Numbers, by numbers, I mean like how much someone can actually lift. Um, You know, if you just didn't pick great parents for getting strong and you've put in 10 years under the bar, and your max deadlift is 405, and like you know, you stalled out on a linear progression at say 280, and you've had to scratch and claw your way to a 405 deadlift, uh, you know, apply yourself, learn a lot in the process, and that's where you are. Like, you're a fucking advanced lifter, you know, like you're not going to set any powerlifting records, but y- you are an advanced lifter, like you are. Like in your context, like that's where you are. Um, and same thing like, like my client who like a linear progression spat him out with a 550 squat when his squat was 510, he was a novice lifter, you know, like he <laughs> he hadn't spent that much time lifting, he wasn't particularly good at it in terms of like you know motor skills and technique and whatnot, he was just a fucking strong dude. Um, so like, yeah don't if if someone is telling you like oh 405 deadlift is the cutoff for intermediate just ignore them don't pay attention to anything they say ever again they have no idea what they're talking about um if you want to use that terminology i would define a novice as someone who can make progression like like measurable progression on their main lifts on a like weekly or biweekly basis if you can put you know five pounds or two and a half kilos on the bar every week or two I'd still consider you a novice. Um, if you can reliably increase strength on say like a monthly to bi-monthly basis, like you run a, a four week or an eight week mesocycle and your lifts reliably go up, you know, five, 10 pounds, I'd say you're an intermediate and past that point where you need like a full training cycle and everything to go pretty well, to make measurable progress, then I would consider you an advanced lifter. Um, And whatever actual numbers on the bar those timelines correspond with, completely irrelevant. Don't worry about it at all.
0: So to play us out uh, with this episode, got a couple of kind of professional development questions. We've taken these in the past. You know, it's usually people who want to uh, uh, get some information about their their schooling, their education, uh, getting into personal training, something like that, or, or interpreting research as well. So uh the first question is from Nathan and Nathan basically is in the middle of a career change he's becoming he just recently got certified as a personal trainer and is currently pursuing a bachelor's degree in kinesiology. And the question is basically uh when does somebody know when they are ready to begin taking on clients as a trainer? Um a little bit of anxiousness, a little bit of uncertainty. So I don't know, Greg, what do you think? When when is somebody ready to start taking on clients?
1: Um <laughs> I mean you're probably not. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean so I think the the education process for personal trainers in America, I don't know how it is in other countries, is is way less than ideal because like training people it's a it's it's an applied thing right like you need to have some some basic book knowledge about what effective training generally looks like but then you also need the the hands-on skills of being able to you know spot technique errors on the fly make like training program adjustments on the fly if like what you wrote down initially isn't isn't working that well for the session. building rapport with people and like being able to get a good effort out of them like those those are all skills that you can only learn by doing and so like in my opinion uh in an ideal world there would be some sort of mentorship component for um personal training certifications where you know you uh and I don't I don't even think it needs to be a particularly long period of time but like you know, you get your, like, you take your test, you get your little certification, but then before you can actually train clients one on one for maybe like eh, two or three months or so, you kind of work under the wing of someone who's been training folks for a while. They know what they're doing. Um, you observe them in action. Uh, they can kind of like let you take some clients while they observe you to make sure that, that, you know what you're doing, uh, and then at the end of the process, hopefully you should you should be pretty decent. Like I, I think that sort of um, like mentorship or like apprenticeship system would be really really ideal for personal trainers. And-
0: in, in commercial gym settings, do, do they typically have? Um- I feel like I've, I've, I worked at a commercial gym where there was a group of personal trainers and there was like a manager of those trainers and they did have meetings and stuff. Do you think that would serve as a good mechanism of just kind of like learning on the job, just being able to lean on some of those colleagues?
1: So I think that would, um, I think that could at least like conceivably accelerate the learning process. So like, like basically I think unless you have some hands-on experience, like your first few sessions in your first few clients, like you're probably going to be pretty bad. Um, but yeah, with, with that sort of like internal gym mechanism in place, I think it could help accelerate the learning process. So like, you know, maybe by a month in, you're pretty confident and, and know what you're doing versus taking like six months to, to really get your feet wet and, and be doing pretty good work. Um, but I still think initially you're, you're probably going to be reasonably bad. Um, so yeah, I mean, unfortunately that's not the system. The current system is what it is. Like you go take a test, you get a piece of paper that says you can train other human beings. Um, and yeah, like getting that piece of paper does not at all mean you're ready to take on clients, but, uh, the way pretty much everyone has done it is. You just start and you take on clients and, uh, you try to get better as fast as you can. Um, if, if you are at a place where you are, where you're in a decent enough financial position where you could like hit up a, a trainer or a gym owner in your area and say like, you know, Hey, I'm working this other job part time. And like when I'm not working, can I come like shadow you and and you teach me some stuff? That would be great. That would be way above and beyond the call. Um not many people do that. People should do that, but like dude, it's it's a hard economy out there. Um and you know, it's not it's not realistic to expect people to make that plunge before they actually start making money as a trainer so if you could do that that would be incredible um i'm not we're certainly not saying we expect that of you but yeah i mean dude if you just got your uh if you just got your bachelor's in kinesiology you just got your first cert you're not ready to take on clients but uh you know you just start doing it and you get better over time and that's i think that's about the the best that is feasible for most people
0: yeah i I really like the idea of if possible shadowing or even doing like a, a brief internship or something like that just kind of working under somebody learning from them
1: which now that I think about it since uh since Nathan did get his bachelor's in kinesiology currently pursuing it or currently pursuing yeah so th- there may be a an internship facet there uh and if that's the case pick your pick your internship uh carefully and and make sure you're shadowing someone or and learning from someone in the type of setting where you would want to train people. Um, and if your college doesn't have an internship requirement, that's a shame.
0: Yeah. I and mean, you, you can do a, you know, quote unquote internship, even if it's not officially an internship through a university mechanism. You know, if, if you say, Hey, can I like shadow you and try to learn some stuff from you? Mm-hmm. Some people might be willing to do that. Um, I, I would definitely say for me personally, when I first started, training people in person, it was really nice because I was working with a sport team and I was working under the head strength coach, uh, at at that school. And so that was a really nice way to get some coaching skills without having the full, um, responsibility of running the entire show you know Mm -hmm. you could give some pointers here and there they could say oh you know you gave this cue you might want to you might want to try this cue in the future a different cue um but yeah any kind of experience where you can work under somebody or lean on somebody with more experience i think that would be a nice way to ease into it and feel a little bit more comfortable um but you know like like greg said like You might not actually be ready, but you might be ready enough to start becoming ready, Mm -hmm. you know, by taking the plunge and, uh, you know, you might make some, some small mistakes getting started, but you'll develop that comfort level as you go. I think.
1: Oh, another thing I'd say as well is like, if you get a job at, you know, like a golds or some sort of big commercial gym, you're not going to have a full client roster on day one, um, So, you know, another thing you could do is like after you get that job, when you do start training people, uh, hours that you're not, that, that you don't have client sessions scheduled, um, you could ask other trainers there with more experience if you could shadow them. So, you know, that, that might be able to help accelerate your development on the job. Uh, cause yeah, your, (laughs) your first couple of months, you're, you're probably It's probably going to be pretty lean in terms of, uh, of how many like client sessions you actually have. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really the only thing I wanted to add.
0: Cool. Okay. So one more here from Hannah, this is more on the research side of things. So Hannah is a first year psychology student recently had a class on how to read research articles. Uh, they were given a bunch of papers on topics. Um, and they, they all kind of had different advice on how to approach reading research. Um, but but she, she mentioned that a lot of them had processes, very detailed processes that were like, you know, five or six hours per paper, like the process of going through it carefully. Um, and so her question for us is basically she'd like to hear how we approach reading research, both when it comes to an individual paper, um, but also when it comes to like an entire area of research where we're just kind of diving in um and, and how our approach changes based on our goal or our reason for reading that research. Do you want to start? Yeah, I can start. Um so I will say 5 to 6 hours per paper if you are trying to emerge on the other side with a full detailed comprehensive understanding of that paper. Five to six hours doesn't sound that implausible to me, mm-hmm. I, so I, I wouldn't re- say like right off the bat five to six hours. That's crazy. I'd say you know if if I were like you know writing a mass article about a specific study and I wanted to feel like I really knew that thing top to bottom, that that probably is about the time frame. Same thing goes. Uh, I don't really do it anymore, but back when I used to review papers for journals, uh, five or six hours at least. Uh, Because, again, the the goal there is... Five to six glorious unpaid hours. Exactly. But the goal is, like, you're supposed to be the gatekeeper there. You're supposed to be the person who is deciding whether or not this, you know, meets the criteria to become part of the published literature. And that's supposed to mean something, Greg. It's supposed to. (laughs) But anyway, so, I mean, honestly, I would say when I would do a a review of, like, a peer-reviewed paper, I would say those would usually take me at least eight to 10 hours, uh, at minimum. But, uh, but yeah, it does vary depending on the goal. Now, a different, uh, different approach, you know, if someone asked me a question about a body of, of literature that I don't really need to know all the nuance, they're, they're just like practical takeaway. What's your sense? Like, what's the vibe you get from this body of literature? If I can find a meta analysis on the topic that was published ideally within the last five to 10 years, usually that's a good way. If you can look through the meta, you can get a general sense of what this body of literature looks like in aggregate. Um, if you can find a couple metas and they both seem to agree and kind of triangulate toward the same conclusion, that's usually about as much as I need to do for if it's a full area of research that I don't intend to like create original content about. Usually, that's the type of thing you can do in a couple hours. Just get a good sense of a recent meta-analysis on the topic, and assuming the meta-analysis was done reasonably well, you should be in pretty good shape. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, we we have have we put out uh, free content about how to read research, or is that only on the mass?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think we have yet. Okay, but yeah. We've talked about it on the podcast before, though.
0: We have talked about it. Um, it's quite a process, and unfortunately, it does require a pretty specialized skill set to some extent. You know, you, It's difficult to carefully interpret a method section if you don't know what the, what the methods are. So it's the type of thing where you have to slow down. When you see something you don't understand, probably do additional reading to figure out what that is. Um, the statistical stuff is a whole other can of worms that, you know, it's i I would say i'm I'm quite biased, but I think it's very difficult to critically appraise research if it's using statistical methods that you have fundamentally no understanding what's going on It's very difficult to to look into that so it it's a process that takes a lot of time to develop that skill set, but I will say this practically speaking, yeah, it's going to take a few hours per paper, most likely, but the best way to get good at it in my opinion is to read a piece of research, develop your own conclusions about was this good or bad? What was the key finding? How useful is this? And then if you can find other people who, who are more experienced doing that same thing for that same paper, I think that can be a really valuable thing. So like if you're scrolling through, uh, you know, whatever social media that you're on, you see that somebody who's really good at this stuff published a, uh, an article about a study. Before you read their take on it, Do your own read through the study. Get your own sense of, you know, what they did right, what they did wrong, and then kind of cross-reference with, you know, the article of the person who's good at this, who has a lot more experience. And what I find is, you know, just talking to people that you know who who are pretty good at interpreting research, if you continue to share ideas with them and they continue to point out things you missed or things you got wrong, over time, you kind of create this collection of mistakes that you'll never make again. And the longer that list gets, you know, you start, you make every minor mistake in the book. And then all of a sudden, you have this really comprehensive list of like, I can't make these mistakes. And that essentially becomes your list of things to check when you're reading research. And you develop that skill set over time. (laughs)
1: yeah what you said there at the end uh resonates with me a lot because that's pretty much what i did um i am i've talked about this on the podcast before i'm not a planner i'm very much the type of person who just rushes headlong into things and uh i try not to make mistakes but if i do like ah fuck it learn from it try to do better next time um and and so like that was basically my process of getting better at reading research um i thought i knew what i was talking about i very much didn't know what i was talking about i wrote content i put it out into the world people who knew a lot more than me were just like what the fuck dude you're being a dumbass." um and then like you know that stings. it's it's publicly embarrassing and then it's like well i messed that up let's not do that again um and yeah, so like dude, like the first like three years, my content fucking sucked, uh and then it just got better because i I had a long list of of screw ups to not do again um so so i I think that helps. um I'm not necessarily suggesting that everyone take the approach that I did. um that would probably be really bad for the the general signal to noise ratio just but... generate a ton of bad. <laughs> <laughs> bad research reviews <laughs> yeah but like whatever it worked for me <laughs> yeah uh let's see so in in terms of like directly addressing this question how long it takes to to get through a paper it kind of depends how well you understand the area of of research um so you know for example if you wanted to do a super thorough review of a paper and it's it's something that you're you know you have a a decent enough context that you kind of know what's going on but you're not super familiar with the research in that area you may you know it may take you two hours to get through the method section because you're running pubmed searches on every piece of methodology used in that study to see like okay what did they actually do here does it seem like it was appropriate or inappropriate etc um When you're reading the discussion section, um, may take you a really long time to get through that because they're comparing and contrasting their findings to prior research on similar topics. And you're like, well, are they representing these prior studies properly? Let's pull them up, check them out. Um, and like, yeah, that can, that can be a really, really long process. And so like dog five or six hours, that's, that's incredibly plausible, um, however, if you re-research in a, in a particular area for quite a while, you might be able to get that number down to an hour or so, hour and a half. Um, cause you know, if you're, if you're scooting through the method section and you've either used some of the methods before in your own research or they're methods that you've seen a lot in prior research in the area, you know what those methods are, you know, if they're appropriate or inappropriate you know, you can just read through the method section and you just know if it was right or not, you know, or, or at minimum, you know what was going on. Um, like Trex was talking about with stats, if you have a, a decent grasp of statistics um, and they they were using statistical techniques that you're, you know, well acquainted with, it shouldn't take you any time at all to get through a results section. Like, you know what they did, you know if it was reported properly or not. Uh, and if it's an area of research, you're pretty well acquainted with. Uh, you can also zip through the the intro and discussion pretty quickly because all of the papers that they're referencing, that they're comparing and contrasting their results with, you've read those papers. You know what went on in those papers. And you don't... You know, you may want to pull them up just to refresh your memory, but you're not going to need to take a lot of time reading them. Like, And, you know, you, you may even realize like, oh, this discussion section was really incomplete. There are a few major papers in this area that they just didn't cite or grapple with the findings of at all. Um, and so like, yeah, if, if it's an area that you're pretty well acquainted with, a lot of that stuff just becomes way quicker over time because you understand that area of research and the methods associated with it way, way better. Um, so like, for example, like, dude, if, if I pull up a periodization study, I did a a meta-analysis of the periodization literature for Stronger by Science. I've read every new periodization paper that's come out since then. Uh, I know the methods people use for general resistance training research. It's not going to take me any time at all to get through a new periodization paper. Um, But So I mentioned uh, TDCS earlier in this episode, transcranial direct current stimulation. I'd heard of it. I was skeptical of it. I hadn't really read any research on it. And then when uh, there was an interesting paper about it, or at least like the results looked interesting um, that I reviewed for mass maybe like a year ago. And yeah, like it it probably took me five or six hours to work my way through that paper because I didn't understand the technology. I didn't understand... Uh I I understood the strength testing methods but not like the the way that one would go about setting up TDCS uh the difference between like anodal and cathodal st- stimulation etc so like it took me a long time to get through the methods and do a lot of background reading to see if what they did was correct and legitimate or not uh it took me a long time to get through the discussion section because they're citing all these papers using tdcs that I haven't read, and so I have to go pull up those papers at least give them a skim to see what was going on there um and yeah like I'm pretty experienced with reading and analyzing research, but that was that was something out of left field and I wasn't you know i I didn't have my feet wet in that area of literature so it, it did take me about five or six hours to get through the first time uh, I read a TDCS paper so um Yeah, dude, (laughs) uh, if, if you're reading and analyzing research well, it either doesn't take you a ton of time because you've already done so much of it that you have like the background knowledge in a niche built up already that you can that you can mow through it a little bit quicker. Or if it's something that's not super familiar with you, it it does take a while and it should take a while
0: yeah i think one of the interesting things is the parallels between this and the previous question which is like if you're waiting around for that special time when you're going to be fully prepared to do a perfect job whether it's beginning training or beginning with interpreting research it's just not going to happen you know it's you got to kind of dip your toes in you got to it's going to be hard at first you're going to get better at it it's going to be easier over time you know so uh it's not that reading research necessarily gets easier. It's that you just build up a bigger skill set. You become more efficient and you have more experience to lean on as you go.
1: Oh, um, so we actually didn't address one part of that question. She asked how we read research articles.
0: Mm. And,
1: and I feel like we've both alluded to it uh, already. But so my process is um, I pull up the paper Uh, I'll first take a glance at the abstract just to kind of get an idea of what went on in the study. Then I skip the intro um, or I'll read like the last two sentences of the intro because that's generally where the research questions and hypotheses are. Uh, And you would be shocked the number of papers that don't actually have hypotheses that relate at all to the statistical tests performed in the study. <laughs> um, so I, I'll generally catch like the last two two sentences or so of the intro just to see like, did they do what they said they were gonna do? Um, and then I'll then I'll read the methods section. Um, like I said, I'll either not spend a lot of time on it or spend a lot of time on it, depending how well acquainted with the methods they used how acquainted I am with the methods they used. Um, if they're, if they're doing stuff that I don't understand well, I'll spend quite a bit of time reading research on, on the methods they use to see what's going on. Um, if I do understand what they did and I read through it, I'm like, okay, I, I could explain in detail their methodology. Then I move on to the findings, um, read the results section, see like, well, first off, like, did they use the appropriate statistical tests for their hypotheses and research questions. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. Uh, did they report the results appropriately and clearly? Um, this, is, this is another whole big thing that uh, is, is maybe beyond what you should be concerned about at this point. But, uh, you know, if you're aware of how data in a particular research niche tends to look, Uh, you might want to just look at, at the structure of the data and various data patterns to see if the findings are, are plausible or if maybe there was like some weird shit that went down. Um, but for the time being, if you're just getting your feet wet, you should probably just assume that it's okay, I guess. Um, and so then like that is the, that is the heart of the paper, the, the methods and findings, like that's what they did. And the rest is, is framing. Um, so then after that, I'll I'll read the intro um, to see basically like, you know, how... What, what do they think the important questions in this field are? Uh, and then how did their, their actual study relate to that stuff? And then I'll read the discussion section. Um, see how it fits in with the rest of the literature. If I know the studies they're referencing that they're comparing and contrasting with sometimes i'll pull them back up just to 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 give them a brief skim to make sure i remember what happened in those papers oftentimes i'm like okay yep they're they're using this paper correctly or no they're using this paper incorrectly um if it's an area of research i'm not acquainted with i'm at that point spending a shitload of time pulling up studies referenced in the discussion section to to uh you know, get a better feel of that whole body of research to see where where that one study fits in. Um, And then like, yeah, that's, uh, and and then I'll compare and contrast what I thought the paper was saying based on the methods and results versus how the authors interpreted their own findings. And some, oftentimes those match up. Sometimes they don't. If they don't, then it's worth rereading the methods and results to see like, did I misunderstand something or are the authors misinterpreting what they found? Um, and yeah, that's uh, that's my basic process.
0: Yeah. My, my process is pretty similar. I think though, I don't know if it's a difference, but it's just, uh, so I definitely go get an idea of what the study's about, you know, see if we got a, a purpose statement or hypotheses, get into the methods, get in the results. After that, I kind of skip, I I either look at like the very first few sentences of the discussion or the very end, if there's like a conclusion uh, section, just to kind of double check, like what I got from the results, is that what they got from the results? And is is that how they framed it in their discussion? But honestly, I usually, if I don't know the literature, if it's a body of literature that I have no experience with. Uh, like a, a a study topic that I'm not familiar with, I'll read the intro um, sometimes first, just to like get caught up to speed, and and then read additional papers if I need to. But if if it's a body of literature I, I feel pretty good about, I usually don't read the introduction at all. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've I've said this before on the on the podcast.
1: The first sentence of any introduction could be cut, and nothing would be lost.
0: Yeah, but I. I wish the introduction sections were just three bullet points. Yeah. I I think that would be fine. But
1: uh, My, my favorite is like every resistance training study starts with resistance training is commonly used to improve athletic performance and increase muscle mass. And it's just and they have like two or three citations for it. And it's like. We don't need that. Well, were
0: you aware that caffeine is one of the most widely used <laughs> psychoactive substances in the world? Oh, man. Try it, it, that. That's the challenge over our summer break. Try to find me a caffeine study that doesn't have that in the introduction. <laughs> It'll be harder than you
1: think. Yeah. Like, that is a good point. Mo- if you've read one introduction in like a specific enough niche of the literature, you've read all of them. Like they they become incredibly redundant after a while.
0: Yeah. So I, I typically, unless I have no idea what's going on in this study, I typically don't read the introduction really at any point. The only exception is if if I'm reviewing it for a journal and giving it a stamp of approval. I need to make sure it's not saying a bunch of like just incorrect stuff in there, right? Um, but like for for a for a mass review i 'm not going to be dwelling on whether or not their introduction was accurate. I want to talk about the methods the results, and how they framed it in the conclusions um and yeah i'll i 'll take a very close look at the discussion, especially if there 's a mismatch between my interpretation of the data and their conclusions that 's when I start to really look at the discussion and say well, we're looking at the same data, but we have very different interpretations. So how did you arrive at yours? And whenever I do that, I'm very open to the possibility that I'm just wrong. Uh, but, but you know, aside from those, I, I, I really think most of the time ought to be focused on methods, results, and, and then kind of contextualizing them when it, for whatever you're doing, writing it up for a school assignment, for a research review, blog post, whatever the case may be. All right, anything to add?
1: Uh, I think that about does it.
0: All right, so that does it for the current season of the Stronger by Science podcast. We are going to take our summer break. Over the next few weeks, we will kind of uh, drop some bonus audio content here or there. So make sure you uh, keep an eye out for that. Stay in touch with us. If you're feeling very sad about missing out on our content for the next couple months, Uh, You can get on our email list. We do send out uh, emails with research reviews and stuff like that. So you can stay in touch with us there. You can also stay in touch with us on a variety of different social media platforms as well. Or drop by the site. We'll have some written content coming out as well. So thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. Take care and enjoy your summer. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or... Really, anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.